Welcome, everyone. Today is Saturday, May 14. And boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about. So little time and so many disasters. And just when you thought you'd seen it all, the hits keep on coming. I'm not sure where to begin today. <laughs> market's all over the place. As we keep saying, trying to call this market on a daily or weekly basis is a fool's errand. The market really got whacked. I mean, let's be real, it went down a lot quicker than even I thought it would. And now it's rebounded for the last couple of days and people are saying, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. The extraordinary volatility day to day is in and of itself a real tell. People want to buy. There's nothing to buy. They can't. There's no there are no offers. People want to sell. There are no bids. And it's just uh, this is not a healthy market. This is not a healthy market. Market may well rebound and rally. I was looking at the chart the other day. I mean, heck, arc could go to sixty for all I know. But we're not done. We're not done. We have some really exciting news to share with you later. Carol Strong will be uh, making an appearance later in the room. We could talk about so many things, whether it's that gem of announcement last night after the close from Carvana. I love when companies set out disastrous press releases on Saturday night. What are they? They think we're not going to notice it. Or the debacle with um, uh, Tesla and Elon Musk. Well, we're going to check out the box and see if you have as many subscribers as, as, as you claim you do. Or the Tether situation. I'm sure most of you are aware of it. I've never had a tweet quite so... Uh, huh followed or, re or, or, or retweeted. Um, we'll talk about that later, but I think the wagons are circling. So there's just, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, in the general scheme of things, I continue to say the message is the market offers return-free risk. A little downside, and there's a little upside and a ton of downside, and nothing goes in a straight line. We don't offer picks in this room. We're trying to explain markets to people and, you know, how does the world look to buy side PM and, and, and teach you how to think about these things. So I'm just sharing with you what I've learned over four decades. And I make plenty of mistakes. It's not the issue. We all make mistakes. We're not making mistakes. We're not taking enough risk. But instead, um, I'm trying to teach people you know, how to look at markets, at least how someone who's been, you know, on the buy side um, would uh, look at markets. And I think we've been pretty good with our overall calls. And I, I know we've helped a lot of people. I'm so humbled. Um, I want to cry sometimes, actually. Some of the messages I, I get from some of you folks about how, I've, you know, you saved money, you avoided disasters, or you bought energy, you shorted Kathy Woods, whatever. It's just been great. So... With that, we have a very special room today. John Carl, um, I've sent you an invitation to speak 
you need to accept it uh, in order to um, uh, in order to come up on stage. Um, the show can't go on without you. So I hope you'll uh, figure this out. You should. There you go, John. Okay. Hey, George. Right, hold on. Hey, John. Good. Awesome. Okay. So John Carl. I've known John for two decades. Yeah, a lot of when years. We, a lot of years. A lot of years. John is uh, well known in institutional circles. He is Nautilus Research, and he's a very thoughtful guy. We've had some epic arguments over the years. He loves when I get triggered. I know you, you guys love when I get triggered. He loves when I get triggered. I think he just holds the phone away from his ear. But you know, we've 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 uh, we've had some great conversations and pushed each other's buttons over the years. I'm usually more bearish than he is, and he's more bullish than I am, and usually he's right. But I think the last year that probably hasn't been the case. In any event, John is um, John. What position did you play in football? I was a lineman. I played uh, D tackle. So you were defensive tackle. There was at yeah. Harvard. There was at Harvard. Is that right? Yeah, I played at Harvard for a little bit, but uh, primarily in high school. When, what year did you play in the Harvard football team? I graduated in 93. I played uh, 90, 89, 90. What, what was your playing weight? I don't know, 245, 250. Would that even be competitive, given that the players are so much bigger now? No. No, I mean, it's the, the funny thing is I look back and, and I recognize this uh, you know, a number of years ago. You know, I wouldn't even be able to see the field. These guys are so much bigger, stronger, faster, you know, just totally better athletes than I ever was. Um, but, yeah, just total different level. And remind me, uh, that was already uh, – Murphy was already on the scene, wasn't he? So, no, 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 no. So, so who was – So Joe Restick. I, I, I was at the tail end of Joe Restick's um, right. kind of career, and he was – I don't know. He was think. I think he was thinking about different things at that time. Got it. Well, Rustic is a legend. I mean, he had a, it was an unbelievable run. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it like like anything else. I think it depends on on you know as a as a as a player. I think it depends on you know where do you fall within that time frame. If you fell at the the last couple of years of his uh, tenure, you know your experience was different than if you fell in the first ten years of his tenure. Got it. Got it. All right. So listen, um, we could probably talk sports all day because you and I love talking sports. But I think the issue before the house is uh, markets and what the hell is going on in this crazy world of ours. So, John, it might just be helpful just briefly. I mean, I, I've known you, like I say, a couple decades. Just explain initially maybe just your career. Um, not a big retrospective, but just basically how would you start your background and then Nautilus and what does Nautilus do? Okay, so um, uh, I went to Harvard. Um, I graduated with an economics degree. Uh, when I left school, I worked for Deutsche Bank for a number of years. Um, I had the opportunity to work at Hellman Jordan uh, and learned a ton of things from Jerry Jordan. Uh, from there, uh, I worked with Dick Mayo and uh, Mayo Capital and then uh, started out with Nautilus Research. And what Nautilus does is Nautilus is a 
a fact-based analysis of historical data. And the underlying thought is that all of the information uh, is already baked into the prices. So there's very few things that are out there that one person doesn't already know and isn't already traded on, it isn't already reflected in the data. And so we are believers that public data is a, a, a great reflection in terms of what's going on uh, in terms of different things. And so what that typically means is, is that um, we employ a number of different statistical techniques to uh, pull out some of the information content that's in the data. Uh, we are, uh, on some level, we are quantitative technicians. And so we will look at things like trend and we will look at seasonality and we will look at cycles. And we will look at, we call them analogs, but we look at patterns and pattern recognition. And so, whereas some technicians will say, uh, this is a head and shoulders, this is a uh, parallel channel, we'll say, okay, this three-month pattern, the six-month pattern, this 12-month pattern looks like this. Uh, and uh, based on the you know, 90% correlations, the forward returns are skewed this way or, or that way. So that's a sense of what we do. But we are uh, kind of at the extreme. We are uh, uh, market historians. And what we try to do is we try to compare what's going on today with what's happened historically. And then we try to figure out if there's some gems or some clues as to what's going on currently that can give us an opportunity to uh, better handicap uh, anticipated returns. So um, thank you for that. It was very uh, cogent and thoughtful. So you kind of, as, I, as I've you know, gotten to know you over the years and I reflect on your calls, you really tend to... Um, veer towards a process of considering the weight of the evidence. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the good news, bad news about what we do is, is we, we try not to have a narrative. Um, and meaning, meaning that when we sit down and we're looking at the data and we're trying to understand what's going on and we're trying to uh, make, uh, we're sharing the information that we're looking at. I'm not doing it saying, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think monetary policy is going to take us to zero, and I, I don't. I, I try not to do any of that stuff because what we found is in the past is when you have a narrative, the question really becomes, uh, who owns the narrative? Do you own the narrative, or does the narrative own you? And the problem with that is, is that as the data changes and as reality shifts in the marketplace, are you? Do you have the intellectual flexibility to change with that? And so we try to be narrative neutral. So just hypothetically, John. Yeah. Like, not that I ever have that problem. But no, like, no, George, this I, is why, this is why, you know, you know, please stop me from interrupting you and you're interrupting me is a, yeah, is, exactly. is just is a, is a classic kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so hypothetically, if you had a client who was all excited and amped up, yeah, because they, they thought they figured out the secret to the universe your process kind of puts some anchoring on that and sort of don't get carried away and guards against getting carried away with the emotion yeah of the hour and, and, and it's much more grounded um and what i like about what you do is there's a it's not to sort of you know the joke the old goldman sachs approach approach 
have a hunch by a bunch. You know, you're, you're not doing that. You're, you're very much rules based and, um, trying to consider the weight of the evidence, which is, which is fantastic because look, we're all human. We all can, you know, buy into stories and narratives, but you need to be angry and personal thinking can really be a trap, but it's wonderful when you can actually look at the data. Um, again, as, uh, Senator Moynihan, former senator from New York, and I think he grew up in New York State, John, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Senator Moynihan famously once said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. You know, George, if you want to be bearish here, that's fine. But recognize you know, the RSI is at five and the MACD is in the toilet and we're, you know, 30% below the 250-day moving average. So like, okay, fine, you know. And on average, when, when you've had that kind of a setup, the market mean reverts and it goes up. So I really love that you do that and it's really helpful, but it makes for a great, it's a great value add. And, and for those of you that are uh, uh, interested, um, and again, I have no commercial relationship with John, but I read his stuff every day. Uh, he's a must follow. Nautilus Research is a must follow. Um, puts out a lot of stuff on Twitter. And if you're interested, um, I'm sure John would not be uh, upset if you called about possibly becoming a client. But again, I have no personal benefit with that. I just find the research extremely, extremely valuable. Um, and if you're always looking for, you know, what's out of whack in the market, what are the extremes and you have an idea, but you want to back test it, John's your guy. John, let me ask you a question. So yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll come up with some back test or some observation. Yeah. Are you, you then try to, do you try to make sense of it? Like try to figure out like what type of narrative would go with that? I, I, I do, but, but, um, I do, and it always makes me feel comfortable when the 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 data analytics kind of fit a story that that makes sense to me. Um, but you know, sometimes it's we 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 also operate under the impression sometimes where hey, when it's dark, when the sky is getting dark and it's cloudy out there, uh, and it looks like it's going to rain, um, you know, I, I can't necessarily walk you through the water cycle, but I can tell you it's time to get an umbrella, and so. From a lot of situations, we can look at and say, I don't necessarily know what's going to move that that way. I can imagine, but um, I can say that the, the data ends up pushing me in one direction or another. Um, I, I feel like at the end of the day, it, it just it, may, it keeps me from making um, uh, too large of a, of a bet on things that, that honestly – you, I think you, it forces you to be humble relative and accept the things that you don't know and just recognize that when you're entering into, you know, when you're trading and you're, and you're, you're risking financial assets in terms of things. You and I are both sports guys. And mm -hmm. what comes to mind listening to you talk, imagine you're watching a basketball game. Yeah. And the player gets hot, like Michael Jordan getting hot. Yeah, yeah. It was that game you remember, the epic game. It was in the '90s, a playoff game. I think it was against Utah. I'm not quite, I don't remember exactly. Remember that? Remember that one game where he put? I think he hit like seven three pointers in a row or something like that. And and then and on the last three pointer, he turns around. He's running down the court. He just he just looks at the camera and he shrugs like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's, it was that's crazy. Classic. Cla it was totally classic. classic. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Now, for most mortals, like that is not a high percentage shot, but. You're caught up in the moment. If you're playing ball, it's yeah. like take it to the hole. Like, like, dude, you just made yeah. the last six. So, go, go for it. All right. So, but, but, hold on, hold on. Let me, I'm going to do yeah. a question here. 
But that is not a good percentage shot. Just because it went in doesn't mean it was a good shot. And so I like to think about what you do is you're kind of like uh, identifying good shot location. And, yeah, it may be true that but you know, when someone says, well, he made it, John, you'd be like, yeah, but, dude, he was 10 feet behind the three-point line. Like, you know, like that's not normal. Okay, so, sometimes, sometimes your data, you'll miss that. But, like, you're playing you're, – you're betting – the odds against Jordan making that 35 footer. And usually that's a good bet. Is that a fair way of saying it? I I think it depends, right? Because typically what we'll do is we'll look at the data and we'll be like, we're looking at these things and we, we run lots and lots of studies day in and day out. And then it's like, wow, you know, 2008 keeps coming up in all the data and it's 11 up versus one down. And I can't shake that 2008 type of type of thing out of the data, right? I can have, 11 up versus one down, you know, six month returns of plus 20%. Oh, except for 2008 where you're down 37%. So I sit there and, and to me, it's one of those things where, where, where you step back and you say, you know, for, for a mere mortal, a uh, mere mortal isn't supposed to make that shot. Oh, but that's Michael Jordan and he's hot. And so you better respect that too. So I, I it, sometimes it's one of those things where you got to step back a little bit and say, what, what, you know, where are we? What kind of regime are we in right now? Uh, are we in a, a 2008 or 2000 type of a scenario where, you know, applying the entire data set and thinking about it uh, broadly, you'll say, well, of course, there's no risk in this market. I mean, I, I can point to 10,000 things that would say that that's that that we've done all we need to do on the downside. Um, but I, I can't shake the 2000 and 2008 out of a lot of our data. And so I'm extremely humble relative to the fact that you know, you get these horrible bear markets from time to time and they destroy a lot of capital. Yeah, no, that's that's really well said. That's really well said. OK, so um, let's try to do this. I just tweeted out a whole bunch of your charts. OK. Um, and um, I think it might be helpful to speak to some of the charts. Um, if you want to follow along, you can go to my Twitter feed. And the charts are all loaded in. So we're doing this a little bit differently from past rooms where this is really going to be sort of an audiovisual thing. Uh, John very John really took this assignment seriously. And he, you know, he was like, I want to make sure I'm not wasting people's time, blah, blah, blah. So he put together some pretty serious effort for this. And this is the type of, I asked John, I said, well, you know, pretend you're going to visit a client that you haven't seen before. And, um, um, what would you, um, what would you tell them? Um, they don't think you're a genius cause you got it right. They don't think you're an idiot cause you got it wrong. What would you tell them? So John, um, if you're looking at my Twitter feed as well, and, and we do this in a, I'll just say a couple things. Um, you have a few, uh, charts in here in order and then everyone go to G noble 79 and hopefully Matt Cox will get this up in the nest shortly. I put three up there. This okay. So, good. all right. So, so, um, you got three of them up there. That's great. So John, um, the first three charts, uh, the small caps down 27.5%, the Russell 2000 breath, and the lower implied volatility on the S&P dip days. So you and I were talking the other day. Yeah. And the first thing you said was you put out a piece on Thursday entitled Time to Drop the Hedges. And you cited a few factors as to why that may be the case. So let's start with that. You know, everyone wants to know, like, what should I do now? Even though we're not trying to do picks, you did put out that piece on Thursday. And again, you're not going to give individual picks. This is more sort of a general market thought. Right, 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 right. So, so let's, could you speak to your thinking behind the piece that you uh, put out on Thursday? 
And again, we've got the first three or four of your charts up there. So take it away, John. Okay. So we've been, we've been cautious. Um, the trending characteristics of the market have been terrible. Um, and uh, for, you know, coming in on Thursday morning, um, you know, as we roll through all of our data and we look at some of the return characteristics that we're looking at, uh, there's a couple things that really jumped out to us that we wanted to make sure we shared with with our clients. So, number one is um, uh, Russell 2000 small caps down 27 and a half percent for the first time in a year. And I take a look and I look at this and you know when I see the Ford returns of plus 40 percent, eight up versus one down, I am that's a giant number. Um, when I look at the returns for the S and P 500 one year out, and it's 27, you know, 0.84 percent, eight up versus one down, that's a giant number. Now uh, that includes 87. That includes the experience in 2008. 2008 is your, um, you know, that's the, you know, if it's not 2008, it's a great time to be buying it. So that, that's one of those things that sticks out to us too, and we also are. Uh, we're technicians, right? So the small cap IWM is basically right back into their, you know, 2018 peak, 2020 peak. So it's at, at a level that to us makes sense where, hey, it should stop. And this magnitude of a decline historically has uh, preceded significant um, mean reversion. That, that's just the facts. You know, that's not me putting on a, you know, I don't have a, uh, an axe to grind here. So that's, that's one. So uh, that's that chart. The second one, I don't know. Yeah, yeah hold on. We got a little bit of problem. All right. So, John, just give it a second. So, John, why don't you speak to the – or waiting for Mac Ox to get that up there. And people can follow along. Again, it's all on my Twitter feed. Or waiting for us to get up there. So, get so, up there. so John, John, if you could just speak now to the Russell 2000 breath chart on, uh, on the assumption that everyone's seeing it now. Go ahead. Okay. So um, – so this data goes back to 1995, and we looked at other times the percentage of stocks in the Russell 2000. I, uh, I, actually, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you. Yeah, uh, it doesn't appear in the NAS, but I, I see what I see what, uh, what 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 Matt Cox is saying. If you just click on it, it says show this thread, it will take you through to the thread that that, that John's referring to. So the second chart is the Russell 2000 breath. Go ahead, John. Sorry. So. Um, we looked at other t- so so, I mean stocks have gotten totally disastered here, right? And so the question is, when you're in, a, in an environment like that, the question is as well, how are we going to compare this environment to the other historical periods? So we looked at other times, uh, the percentage of stocks in the Russell 2000, uh, the number of stocks uh, is below 15 percent in terms of their 200-day moving averages. So very few names in the Russell 2000 are trading above their uh, their 200-day moving averages, and less than 12.5% are trading uh, above their 50-day moving averages. So just, just to get that in concept, you know, 87.5% of all the stocks are trading below their intermediate-term you know, moving averages, and 85% of all the stocks in the Russell are trading below their long-term moving averages. This is like, I don't know, George, I, I, holy cow kind of stuff, right? That, that doesn't happen all the time. And so you know, going back to 1995, uh, it's happened seven other times. And the 12-month returns for the Russell 2000 are plus 36%, seven up versus zero down. Oh, 
if, if you can look through the data and you say like, oh, wh when else, like what's the, what's the, 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 the boogeyman out here? Oh, that's October of 2008. Six months later, you're down 20%. Like, I don't know, is this the Michael Jordan of, of markets or, 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 the, or the antithesis of Michael Jordan that's going to say that, yeah, that's true. Every single time you get that, that's true and you should be doing that, except for 2008 when this ends up being a problem. Johnny, hold on one second. Yeah. Yeah, hold on. Um, yeah, I know the market's closed, but this Carl guy's on, on my space right now. He's scaring me out of my short positions. Could you see if we can buy – I want to cover some of the stuff. Maybe those London bookies will give us a market. I want to buy a bunch of S&Ps right now. We're a little bit too short. He's gotten me – he's getting me scared. I think we're too short. Yeah, let me know when you get filled on that. Hold on. Okay. So, sorry, John. I'm back. What were you saying? Sorry. sorry. <laughs> so, so, but this is, one, this is just one of those studies where I sit back and I go, I don't know. This is, these are just the facts, right? So when stocks are totally disastered like this, um, they typically rebound. And, and, and typically everyone uh, is, uh, you know, like, I get it. I mean, look, George, you and I were texting on, on Thursday morning and I was like, Oh, it looks like Tether's trading below its 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 peg, and I know that you've told me in the past that that's a uh, you know I, I don't know anything about uh, crypto beyond like how it trades, but like that's a potential liquidation event like problem, and okay everything worked out okay and we've got our big reversal in terms of different things, but like that to me is a reflection of the anxiety in the markets right here right now, and the reflection of the anxiety in the markets as expressed through. The, the devastation that we've witnessed on an individual stock perspective is, is, also, is, is in this Russell 2000 breath analysis. And so you can be bearish, and I'm not saying that you, know, you can't hit that uh, three-point shot from half court. I'm just saying it's not, you know, you shouldn't be betting on that. I, I know, or forget about it, you just bet on whatever you want, but like, that's an unlikely outcome. Yes, 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 John. You, you, you're like a bookie. You're trying to play with the odds in your favor. It's sort of like, you know, when when the dealer's showing a six, you know, yeah, you, yeah no, okay, right, yeah, okay, exactly, okay. So, okay, so let's say, okay, I heard this John Carl guy. I don't know him, but shit, look at all the numbers he's got here. He's not, he's not talking smack. This is the real deal. So, how are we going to know if this is the one time? This is in 2008 where. You know, it's like, what could possibly go wrong? You know, yeah. I went long because Carl told me to. Oops, yeah. wait a second. Yeah. Like, how are we going to know that this was, this is in 2008? So, um, when it comes down to, um, I, 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 look, George, you and I have had this discussion. I think we've had this discussion in the past is that good tactics end up saving, you know, bad strategy, you know, day in and day out. And, and to me, this is an environment where you should really be respecting you know, levels and stops and that kind of stuff. It, it really is. And so I can't say beyond, you know, uh, hey, you know, I think this is a reasonable place to be, to be you know, expressing a, a positive perspective on equities. And you should probably do it, be doing that with a stop. Uh, to me, that, that's, that's the most reasonable, rational uh, thing to be doing. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So, John, what's the next one you got? Lower implied volatility. What, what, what's this one about? So, so this, is, this is an interesting it, – it's interesting for me, right? So, so on, um, on Wednesday – Wednesday was a weird day because Wednesday, you know, the world's coming to an end. Uh, NASDAQ's down 3%. S&P's getting smoked. And implied volatility, the VIX, is down. Like WTF. That's not supposed to happen, right? 
No. Like, no. And, 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 and right. I, read, I read a lot of commentary about that. So, um, what, what, so but these, this is this these this is the facts, right? So, so number one, it's really it's really weird. Number two is is so we looked at other times. The VIX was down a percent. Like it's not just oh it was down a little bit. It's down a whole percent. So the VIX is down a percent, and the S and P is down one and a half percent on the day. And this is the first time in three months. Okay. So so the question is is like what's going on when no, so, so I look at the VIX as a reflection of who's buying protection, who's buying puts, who's trying to like, you know, batten down the hatches as the world's coming to an end. So the world's coming to an end, but, but the pros, they're not buying protection. They're not buying puts. So I step back and I go, huh, people smarter than me have decided that the stocks and, and indices have reached a level where it doesn't make sense to buy protection anymore. And so we back tested this. And so we were long, we were long a ton of, um, we were long a ton of, 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 of implied vol. And so we, we pay attention to implied vol like a lot because that's our hedge. So in, in my mind, I'd rather be betting, uh, as opposed to shorting and, and you and I can have different conversations on different things, George, but as opposed to shorting, I'd rather be playing the downside with, with, with volatility, you know, um, uh, th- that, that's just me. I'd rather have an, uh, uh, an asymmetric risk profile as opposed to a symmetric risk profile when I can manage it. So, but, but, to, but anyway, so, so I go back and I look at this stuff and I'm like, Oh, you know, six months out, the average return for the S and P is 16% five up versus one down. Uh, one year out, your average return is plus 26% five up versus one down. You get in, in the, in terms of the time frames that you get, you get, Oh, there's 2001. Like that's at the end of the, or towards the end of the, uh, the tech wreck. Uh, and then you've got, oh, there's 2008 again. So, so like when, when I sit back and I'm, I'm running this analysis and we do it a lot and it's like, I don't know, you get 2008 popping up again. So, so there's no, as much as I'd like to be like, oh, you know, let's, let's put it all in and let's, let's do, you know, double levered, you know, pick your ETF. You know, I would pick the small caps and, um, and let it rip and ride. But like the problem is, is that you're playing against an opponent that is, extremely you know potentially deadly so like you got to be a little bit careful there um so that's that one um so let's go let's go to the next one which um so yeah, okay so what you did the volatility one and now you've got a couple of uh charts oh i think i may have put the same thing no you got two charts here considering an inflection in real rate so why is this important what's the message from these charts okay let me uh let me just skip down on there I, th- I think that I, I think I put them in the order you gave them to me. I mess it up. That's all right. So, so, so I can go through. There's, there's a bunch of statistics in terms of, of the, the uh, kind of the calamitous performance of stocks, uh, you know, from the beginning of the year that basically suggest, hey, we're in and around potentially an inflection point in terms of, of, of risk assets. Okay. And I can go like, I can go through a whole host. We can keep going through a bunch of these on the on on equities and and literally they just happened, right? I'm not saying oh this happened two weeks ago. This this is these are studies that I mean we I literally I published this on Thursday morning when the S and P we walked in and S and P's were still down like one and a half percent in the morning. So it's not like I'm I'm and so this all this stuff is fresh. Is, I guess is my point. You know, forget about the rally that we had. You know, Thursday Friday because th- those things are meaningless. In terms of like, in terms of the, the the scheme of this stuff, so that's that's one. But so if we talk about the considering an inflection in in um, in interest rates, 
Uh, which one are we talking about? Yeah, so, 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 John, I'm putting. I put them up in the order you sent it to me. All right. You, have, you have sent me an email. You have two. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. I, that's the order in which I in which I put them up on the Twitter. Okay. So the inflection in real rates uh, is is interesting. So um, to me, the big debate on uh, fixed income is what's priced in relative to uh, the Fed. Uh, and what isn't priced in. And so one of the things uh, that we, we looked at is that we looked at the relationship between uh, the U.S. CPI, uh, which is inflation, uh, versus the uh, U.S. two-year yield on a, on a six-month rate of change. And so, um, so what this basically says is, is when – and so you know, yields have, have screamed here. Right? So we, we came in to the beginning of this year – and U.S. 10-year yields were 1.5%, right? Ridiculous. So, like, you look back and you're like, oh, that's crazy. We're 3%. You know, so um, from a valuation perspective, you know, all of the, like, this whole decline, I think you can sit back and say, um, you know, like, we've had this re-rating in terms of stocks based primarily off of the move that we've had in interest rates, Okay. So that's so that's like that's my 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 ongoing uh, that's my belief. So then the question is is like well when do you know because I'm a glass half full kind of a guy when do you know uh, that that you know rates aren't going to rip your face off and you're not going to continue to get uh, continued valuation compression and so especially with you know we're at forty year highs in terms of CPI right. Um, and so what, what we found is, is that the, uh, it's really about the two-year rates because, you know, rates currently are much different. Like uh, where two-year yields are trading is very different than where Fed funds are trading, right? Fed funds are super low and two-year yields are relatively super high. And so in this uh, analysis, what we've done is, is we've looked at other times when the, uh, the net six-month rate of change on – Inflation less two-year yields is below one. So you're less than 100 basis points. So that's an indication that yields have uh, digested uh, 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 you know, a, 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 an accelerated move. And what we found is that um, what we found is that typically U.S. two-year yields are lower uh, you know, in the short term, 21 basis points, two up versus six down. And then they're lower on a one-year basis, uh, you know, 36 basis points, three up versus five down. And that typically, because at, at my core, I'm an equity guy. I mean, we do a lot of global macro stuff and we look at lots of different things and we're data guys. But like at my core, um, I look at the, uh, you know, 12-month return for the S&P here is plus almost 11%, six up versus two down. And then, oh, look who's in that mix again. It's 2008. So like that to me is like, unless you're, if this is a 2008 type year, then you should be worried. But if it's not, and look, 2008 only happens every once in a while, but when it does happen, it's, it's, it's a total horror show, uh, then things work out okay. So the other, por the other portion of this, and, and George, I don't know if now is the time to have this discussion, is look, the, uh, the, there's a 40-year downtrend in terms of rates that basically started with, with Volcker in 1980. Yeah, so, John, let's jump ahead, please, because okay. ones who's paying attention, following along, you've got a couple of real rate charts. But then beyond that, let's jump to that one. 
Okay. It's entitled, everyone says, yield pressures dissipate. That's the one you're starting to refer to. So let's talk about that one. Okay. So we looked at other, so this is, we're, um, you know, we're mechanical guys, right? So it's like, we, we looked at other times that U.S. 30-year yields declined by 25 basis points from a one-year high uh, after having made 150 basis point move up. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the mechanics of these, you know, how do we pluck these dates out, okay? And so what we found is, is that, um, number one, for 30-year yields, for, for longer tenor yields, uh, 12 months out, they're, they're lower, not higher, so it's an inflection for yields. So down 36 basis points. You're 50-50 in terms of, of whether you're going to be right or wrong. So if you look down below, we look at percent uh, number of events up versus down. That's three up versus three down, okay? So it ends up being a um, – if you look at the returns for the S&P 500, three months out, 6.5% uh, positive return, six up versus zero down. Uh, you know, so that's a positive. So, so the point is, is that – uh, when you have these types of moves in rates, that you end up having a, uh, a relief rally in uh, in stocks. Awesome. Okay, and and uh, you know we also include the annualized twenty one day volatility, and you get volatility, uh, which is basically demand for protection right. uh, declines. Okay, like so so that's that's what we're seeing. And so the the so if you look at the, the other thing I'd like to bring out on this chart is is uh, kind of the regime that interest rates have been in since 1980, okay? And so there's been a massive downtrend here. So, so George, I know that you so, – so the question is, and I'm not going to – I won't put this on you, George, but like the bearish perspective is that rates were in, – in this period of normalization, that rates aren't going to stop at three or three and a quarter. So the, the, the peak in U.S. 10-year yields, you know, before uh, – you know, we entered into the pandemic, we're like three and a, three and a quarter. So my expectation is, is like, oh, okay, we're probably not going to get above that. And this 40 year downtrend holds. The risk is that 40 year downtrend is broken. And that, yeah, so John, let me interrupt. And also, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to get to some of these other charts more quickly. I don't want to have death by PowerPoint. Yeah, sorry. If people, if people would jump up to the prior one. This is the question I'm going to ask you. Well, the chart we skipped over where it says considering inflection on real rates, the second one of those, yeah. where I look at, and this is going to go to market rotation within the market now, so I'm thinking now as, a, as, a, as, a, as from a sort of sector perspective, yeah. I look at that chart of real rates, and that's on the roof. I mean, you got it up at 6% or whatever it is. Now, yeah, yeah. now it's a level from which it's tended to decline in the past, but look at the trend. So let's assume you're right, okay, yeah. and let's say yield pressures dissipate. And let's say yields come off is kind of what I would read from this. Yeah. What would that imply to you? Let's say it's right. I'm not saying it is right. But if that is right, what would that look considering intermarket relationships? What would that imply to you about sector rotation and factors within the market? In other words, you know, we've had this leadership of, um, you know, inflation beneficiaries and the long duration stuff. I know you've been a longtime fan of housing stocks, yeah, yeah. some of the high PE stuff. Do you think if this plays out the way you're guessing it will, do you think things like housing stocks and similar interest-sensitive parts of the market will reassert themselves? I, I think it's entirely possible. The problem that I have is, is I, I have a real hard time like imagining um, uh, how people are going to be digesting like uh, 30-year mortgage rates at like five and a, five and a quarter or whatever. Oh, hold on. Stop, 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 stop. 
No right. narrative. You're pulling a George Noble movie. Oh, right? yeah. So, oh. yeah. The, the simple answer is yes, George. If, the, if, okay. if this is going to be – if I'm going to be your witness and you're going to badger right. me, I'm going to say the, yes, George. The answer is yes. How's it going to work? All right. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, John, let's let, let's make it cleaner because I, okay. I know you start to get caught up in personal thinking, which I pull that stuff on you all the time. Your channel, your inner yeah, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking, okay. So let's take a sector where it's not so obvious. So like, let's take a high PE growth sector like software. All right, where yeah. there's a huge duration component. Yeah. Would you expect those types of stocks would do better if your interest rate call is correct? I, d- I do. So I'll, I'll, I'll the, 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 um, a better one or, or one that I, I would put in there. And, and these aren't like, you know, um, kind of your arc, uh, Kathy Woods type of names, or maybe they are, but it's like, um, like biotech. So, so these are, uh, loss making firms that are betting on innovation and they've got future cash flows that are 15 years out and um, they've been totally, you know, you'll always accuse me of being a dumpster diver, but like you take a look at like the IBB and it's, it's trading below it's 2020 low. It's trading below it's March, 2020 low. And I look at that and I go, okay, you know, if I'm going to connect my little dots and I'm going to say that, you know, if perhaps, uh, interest rates are inflecting, and that, and, and I know that um, uh, there's been total desolation in the market, and I know that uh, you know all of these uh, biotechs have been totally disastered. Uh, I don't know. I, my mind goes to the, to, to like uh, biotechs and like the IBB. I see five giant waves down. I see a parallel channel where it ends up connecting. And honestly, I feel like if you can be buying stocks below, you know, where they were trading in, in March of 2020, that's that's probably not a bad entry point. Yeah. John, John, that is so insightful. And I have to say what I really like about um, what you're saying, it's not exactly what you're saying, but the benefit of this room, we have so many smart people coming in here. It's unbelievable. Guys like yourself and Michael Kantrowitz and Michael Belkin and Tony Greer and Tommy Thorne. This the list goes on. It's endless. We've done about I don't know, 30 of these spaces. And what really resonates with me, and I think the power of this room, this is kind of, you know this, is when you can put the pieces together, it's so like you're you're looking at the charts. It's trade what you see, not what you think. Check your ego and your narrative by the door. Yeah. But Michael Kantrowitz, who's a friend of this room, and hopefully he'll, he'll come in here before too long, he's been talking about we're going to go from, he's a strategist now. He's not a, he's not a back-testing you know, uh, quant chartist like you. His narrative has been, he thinks we're looking at a two-stage bear market. He's actually bearish in the market. But more importantly, he thinks we're coming up upon a time of decelerating growth, which is going to lead to margin pressures and falling earnings. More mm-hmm. importantly about that, within the market, the rotation, he has said that from here, the things he'd want to be underweight or short, it's less the long-duration Kathy Wood-type stuff and maybe some of the more economically sensitive type stuff. So from a strategic perspective, that really dovetails very nicely what your quantitative work uh, has come up with. And I, I just I just find that fascinating. I, I really do. So I really want to thank you for that. That's just, that's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant observation. So, John, um, I, I mean, school's in session. I don't want death by PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, that's so, fine. Hold, hold on, hold on. What I'd like to do, Yeah. let's hold the crypto... Um, comments for later i'm sure they'll come up but in the remaining charts that you have if we just quickly breeze through them 
I mean, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll make it easy. Uh, the next chart, you say early indications of value in short duration of U.S. corporate bonds. So you're kind of warming up to short-term bonds right now. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, 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 this, is, this is just to say, you know, um, as opposed to, you know, Tina, there are some alternatives out yeah, there where, exactly. where, where, exactly. where, where you can get a reasonable return yep. for taking a reasonable yep. amount of risk. Yeah, and, and you probably know, and I used my line on you the other day, Tina is dead. Tina is dead. Tina ain't coming back. I don't know what we're going to get, but it ain't going to be. T Tina has been retired permanently, and, and, and the number is not going to be hoisted up to the rafters of the Boston Garden. No, Tina is dead. Tina was a bad idea. Tina was like greatest hits Peter Frampton, one and done. That's over. Okay, let's go to the next one. SPX wave count and key levels. Don't tell me you're one of these Elliott wave guys. What the hell is this? You got, you got your you got your crayon, your ruler out, crayons and ruler out, and you can spell Fibonacci. So now you're doing this wave count crap on me. <laughs> I'm teasing you, dude. What yeah. is, how does this wave count chart speak to you? Explain what this is. Okay, so so we approach things kind of with an open mind, and whenever you're doing a so Nautilus part of part of Nautilus is is you know the whole Fibonacci. Um, uh, geometric growth and repeated cycles. And so we, we look for patterns and we look for uh, relationships and we're looking for symmetry. Okay. And so when I look at, um, when I look at, at what, what we've done so far, it, 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 and this is, this is honestly, this is why we backtest all this stuff, right? Because, you know, it, it's like that scene from, uh, from airplane. Oh, what do you make out of this? I can make a hat. I can make it this. I can make it like, I, I look at this and like, this is the, this is the, um, it's, if I'm just going to trade the numbers, I'm going to say, I'm going to get long, I'm going to get leveraged and I'm going to use a stop. If I'm, if I'm going to layer on, um, uh, some, some, I, I, I think some critical thinking here is to say, Hey, you know, I'm open to the possibility that this, uh, we could have another leg down. I don't know if this is going to be a, um, an ABC, that's all we've done. And now we're off to the races and we're going to, we're going to make a new high, right? Because the, the numbers in, in the, in the, in the stuff that I just showed and walked through says, George, we're going to make a new high, right? Like wow. you got it. Huh. My point is, is like, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the security, hold on security. Will you George. get this guy out of here? He's calling for a new high. We can't have no, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta, but like, if, if those studies are true, you have to be open to the possibility of a new high. Right. Okay. That's, that's, that's all I'm saying. And I don't know if I am, right? So maybe I'm not as intellectually flexible as that. But I look at this and I say, well, how am I going to know on the S&P right. whether, you know, you know, whether this is for real or this is just, Got it. You, know, you know, like, oh, yeah. this is a, a, a local low and it's nothing, right? All so right. in our mind... This forty-one sixty-five on the S and P five hundred is going to be the question where, if this is going to be, it's three waves down. Then that's all. Then and you get above forty-one sixty-five, and you stay above forty-one sixty-five. Then you say, okay, that's a primary low, and off we go. If we rally to forty-one sixty-five, and then we decline, and and we don't get above there, and we can't sustain any strength above there, then you say, uh oh, you know, maybe this is two thousand and eight. Got so it. that's the that's the reason why I put we put this stuff in there. All right, I want to get to these really quickly, um, and people can look at these at their leisure um, in my Twitter feed. Um, and and by the way, if you contact John, John, what is your email address, please, for those that are listening? 
Uh, it's John, J-O-H-N, at nautilus-cap.com. Uh, uh, the easy way to, to uh, kind of look for us or to, or to reach out if you want to do a trial or something like that is to uh, look at Nautilus Capital uh, or nautilus-cap.com and then just, just do the contact us and, and uh, we'll, we'll set you up for a, a trial just to see what it's about. And your Twitter feed is great. I'm, I'm glad you put so much stuff in there. All right, very quickly, and I want to go to questions. Um, you have a chart here. The next one's considering crypto's implications for, for risk assets. I don't want to talk about that. I think it's self-evident. We can okay. speak this in the questions. Um, also, two charts on all the crypto trend. I don't want to talk about that either. But last two charts, and let's just be done with this. Okay. S&P Breath. It looks like we've come to a level which historically um, is a good place to uh, maybe get long. Yeah. Uh, just, just real quickly, John, 30 seconds on that one. Is, is it pretty much Captain Obvious? Like it's, it's yeah. Okay. Yes. And then the last but, one. But, but, but note again, there's 2008, right? Yep. So, so anyway, keep going. And the last one, Nautilus Animal Spirits Index reflects diminished risk appetites. Please, please quickly speak to this one, and then we're going to go to questions. Okay, so what we've we've done is we've we we compile a whole lot of uh, uh, sentiment data, and we we manage. Uh, this is breath data is involved in this too. Uh, we look at uh, the spreads between and uh, between fixed income returns and and uh, equity returns, and we also look at uh, the spreads in terms of of corporate bonds, and we've we've looked at this, and we think that this is this is our proprietary. Uh, index that has helped us historically identify uh, times where risk is relatively diminished. Uh, and the last time that our animal spirits index got this low uh, was back in, in March of 2020. And uh, the returns kind of speak for themselves in terms of the stuff. But this is, this is our proprietary uh, sentiment indicator. That's awesome. What a tour de force. Um... John, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we move to the next section? Uh, uh, that was that was wonderful. So why don't you just take a breath? You're working pretty hard on this. That's absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, you know, I read John's stuff every day. I, I suggest you do as well. He'll set you up with a free trial if you're interested. And he's pretty, you know, commercial about these things. So I don't know. Maybe he'll even offer a discount on in this room. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't ask me to say that. But I'm going to kind of tease him a little bit. John, just to let you know, others have offered discounts and it's worked out pretty well. So uh, we're going to do something totally different now um, and just hold your questions. I'd like Carol uh, Strone, if she's there. Carol, please raise your hand. Uh, I'd like to have Carol come up and say a few words if she's there. And if not, I don't know where she went. Uh, here she comes. Hey, Carol, good to see you. What's going, what's Hi, going on, Hi, George. Good to see you. Good to see everybody else. Uh, okay. Well, two weeks ago, we had a $50,000 matching gift pledge from a friend of the room, uh, Alexander Stahel. I hope I'm not butchering Alexander's name. Um, and that pledge, as many of you know, has inspired many gifts, including a $20,000 gift from another anonymous donor that came in this past week. So as a result of dozens of people being inspired by Alexander's gift, we have, as of yesterday, the funds have been wired, unlocked Alexander's $50,000 gift. And thanks to another leadership gift of $10,000 that we received from another friend of the room a while back, 
Jan Van Eck, we have, as soon as all those gifts are posted next week, we will have reached our $200,000 goal and we will have passed it. We're going to be at $210,000. And it was just crazy six weeks ago, we thought to even set such a goal. But here we are. And we're a little crazy as a community anyway. So is there any reason to think we can't on, keep on going? You know, the need is still there. World Central Kitchen has managed to do what no other much bigger organization has been able to do. 23.5 million uh, hot meals served, 10.5 million pounds of food transported, 230 cities in Ukraine as a base of operations. And they've accomplished nothing short of a miracle in the worst of all possible situations. They're not only feeding people, they're supporting their livelihoods. They're helping to keep the whole food system in Ukraine intact so that people actually have something to come back to. And they're making food an agent of change. And they're feeding the spirit, spirit of Ukrainian people so that they can keep on fighting. So my thought, is there any reason why we can't keep on making Twitter an agent of change with the giving that we've been doing so far as a community so that millions of people can eat and so that mass genocide can be prevented. And I'm just in awe of the kindness of strangers like Alexander and Jan and the other 600 people in this space that have given over the past six weeks. A wholehearted thank you to everybody. This room is about helping the average person preserve their hard-earned money and it's also about how average people can help one another. So just thank you so much to everybody and George for this effort that you have spearheaded. Thank you so much, Carol. And um, for those of you that don't know her, Carol is um, she's part of the team. She's spearheading all the philanthropic efforts as well as some other things that we're doing. Uh, as we mentioned in this room uh, over the last few weeks, we're going to be coming out with a research product uh, probably in June sometime where for a pretty reasonable price, you're going to be exposed to an assortment of top-notch institutional uh, quality research in a con in abbreviated compendium form. It's going to just be an extraordinary value. Uh, you're going to be exposed to the kinds of speakers that we've had in this room uh, the, the, you know, the last few weeks. And so that's extraordinary. And then we hope to have an ETF up and running by September. Um, it should go to the, 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 the prospectus will go to the SEC for comments on June 1. And it takes 75 days to get it up and running. So we're very excited about that. And Carol's been really helpful with all this and she's a driving force. And so, you know, if you have any questions about, about the philanthropic efforts, please reach out to her. Um, and both in my Twitter feed and in her Twitter feed, you'll find links to give to World Central Kitchen and Carol, I don't know if you repost it again. It's like, when you got to keep retweeting these things? But it's just, I'm so flattered. I'm so thankful for all of everything everyone has done. And one of the key points that Carol made, it's not just the big gifts. It's, it's the inclusiveness, the fact that we have 600 or 700 individual donors. It's just amazing. We've done something that's never been done on Twitter before. And, and Carol, did you mention to me that there was some other fundraising effort, I don't know, a month or two ago that raised like 180000 and, and 
and explaining why we picked why we picked the goal that we did and, and we and we've blown through that. Uh, yeah, we I when I contacted World Central Kitchen to set up this initiative, I asked them what the largest amount they had raised so far as a crowdsourced fundraising fundraising effort like this, and they said it was one hundred eighty thousand. Um, I'm hoping that we have definitely beat that record with our 200,000. That was the goal. And um, we'll just see see where we can take this. It's just extraordinary, the power of this group. It is. It's community. And we're helping each other so many ways. It's community. We're learning together. We're making the world a better place together. People like John Carl come in this room, you know, no personal game. I mean, maybe he'll get some business out of it, but it's not what he comes in here. He comes in here because he wants to teach people. And I told him he'd enjoy himself. Um, he had to take my word for it. This was going to be enjoyable. So to that end, let's not be too harsh on him. Let's go to questions, which is always the best part of this, these rooms. So I'd like to start uh, with uh, KFAB first and then Baseman. Uh, and then after Baseman, we will go to 4E93. So, KFAB, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Hey, George. Thanks, and uh, congratulations to you and Carol um, for what Carol just spoke about. Um, I have a two-pronged question. They're, they're not connected. So, for, for John, um, it seems to me that the elephant in the room analytically between all of your back testing is whether or not we're going to enter a recession. Um, so, do you guys do any kind of work with uh, leading indicators um, or, you know, things like ISM or consumer sentiment, that kind of stuff to try and supplement, um, some of your back testing to try and figure out when we're going to have a recession. And then the, the other question I had is how do you think about the, um, the issue with back testing relative to known universe, meaning that your looks like a lot of your stuff goes back to the early nineties. And as we've seen with this 40 year, uh, uh the type of stuff with inflation, you know, obviously, we're all limited with backtesting to the data that we have at our uh, disposal. So um, do you look at other countries with inflation problems in the past? Or uh, how do you think about that from kind of an ex-ante perspective, as well as the, from a backtesting, knowing that that's a limitation? So with respect to uh, recessions, we, we look at a lot of uh, economic data sets um, and... One of the most powerful indicators of a recession, honestly, the best has, has, has really been the S&P 500 and uh, in terms of declines. So typically when you get um, uh, strong moves in energy, like unfortunately like we're having, and big declines in the S&P like we're having, uh, a recession is likely. So, but that being said, um, we're trying to trade uh, assets. The, I be, at the end of the day, I think that asset prices are anticipating a slowdown in economic growth. So the, the, the question typically, so this is a little bit of the conundrum that we work with, and which is, so, so last year, uh, we were looking at low unemployment, we were looking at a three-year rate of change on the S&P that uh, was north of like 90%. And when we look at our you know, data sets, typically what we'll do is we'll go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s on the S&P and kind of uh, uh, 
you know, Frankenstein some data in terms of putting it together so we've got a longer term uh, data set. But the, uh, the problem basically is, is that when y- your returns are inversely correlated with, say, um, employment. So when, uh, when unemployment is really, really low, uh, is not typically a time where you're going to have outsized uh, uh, equity returns. And so, uh, like we looked at one of the studies that we looked at, which is cautionary, is we looked at other times when you've got uh, GDP growth, is, which is negative, and uh, uh, very high uh, inflation, and you get stagflation. And the returns on that on a two-year, three-year basis are flat and kind of punk. So... Uh, to answer your, your, the the first question is we we look at a lot of different things. Um, the, the second answer to that, the, the primary answer to that question is, is it's been my experience that one of the best indicators honestly has, as a predictor has been, uh, equity returns. So, so that's kind of two, even though that's perhaps a little bit circular. And then the, um, the second question, uh, is, is I think a really important question with respect to kind of what we do, which is um, over what, what's the appropriate time frame to, to run your analysis or your data? Because um, you know, if you take a 10 year time frame, you're taking on all the biases associated with that and all the regimes that are consistent within that uh, time frame. And I'm aware of that. I find it's very difficult to replicate the quality of data that we have kind of internationally. Um, so uh, we kind of work with what we have uh, in terms of different things. And we acknowledge the fact that, you know, we're, we're pretty transparent. So, so it's, our clients are institutional uh, investment managers and analysts. And our goal is to help people make more uh, informed uh, risk management decisions. And so we're very, you know, this is exactly how we do it. This is exactly the time frame, And what ends up happening for, uh, but as being an analyst, choosing the time frame that you, you look at is a, subje- is a, is a part of the subjective piece of it. I can't pull myself out of that. Uh, so there's two issues. Number one, I can't pull myself out of it because I, I, I do have to make a decision in terms of like, is the last 10 years relevant to what we're talking about? Or should I be extending that to the last 40 years? Can I get all the data in the last 40 years? The answer is no for a lot of these different indices and stuff like that. So, um, so like, for example, you know, our Nautilus Animal Spirits uh, uh, Index doesn't include anything in crypto because crypto just doesn't, hasn't existed that long. So, um, so that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's, that's how I would respond to it. Yeah, so, so, so John, I mean, one of the things that you and I always push back on, like when I get frustrated with your answers because you kind of checkmated me, and then I'll pull out my usual BS, which is, well, what if it's a regime change? All right, and for much of the last, you know, as long as you and I have known each other, well, there hasn't been a regime change. Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is a regime change. And I'm not, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not asking you to buy into the idea of a regime change or isn't a regime change. But if I were to say to you, staying with the football analogy, where's the seam in the zone defense? Like, how are you most likely to be wrong? 
if if there was a regime change, if there is a regime change, like that could kind of like mess you up a little bit, no? Totally. Look, I th- I think the biggest risk to all this stuff is uh, that we're going to break out of that forty year downtrend in interest rates, and we're going to have a much larger revaluation uh, in terms of uh, future cash flows. And so I sit here and um, I think of, you know, what is it that's informing that long-term downtrend in interest rates? And I think, number one, the, the, the peak is it's Volcker and, hey, it's uh, inviting China into the World Trade Organization and the impact that that had on inflation, uh, on, on, you know, the supply of available workers over long term. You know, then you've got population trends then you've got technology, and all of those things over time have pushed inflation really low. And I look at, and George gets annoyed with me, and I'll say, "Oh, well, we've made a generational low in in in, um, in interest rates, and 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 maybe that's Captain Obvious, but I don't believe that we're ever going to see the type of interest. We're never going to see interest rates as low as they were um, in the United States back in uh, in 2020." Oh, Captain, yeah, Captain Obvious. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So, 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 so I, I look at that and I say, well, if, if, uh, if I'm, if I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm intellectually going to, to create the lower bound, that that means that that trend at some point is going to have to get broken, whether or not it gets broken, you know, this year, or next year, at some point it, it could just be broken by going sideways. So I, I, I do embrace the notion that, um, you know, I, I think about all the reshoring and I think about all the commentary about the relationship between the United States and China and what that's going to happen. Uh, so I, I, it wouldn't totally surprise me if, you know, maybe it's five years down the road, we look back and say like, yeah, that the most important thing that we should have all been paying attention to was the fact that, uh, you know, the environment, the regime for interest rates has changed. Right. And John, I'm reminded, uh, it's interesting that you say, I mean, I, I love your intellectual uh, flexibility or macro awareness. The idea that rates could go much higher. John Roke, who's a good <laughs> friend of the show and one of the sharpest technicians on the street, you know, he, he was calling for 3% rates for quite a long time now. And he was so right when it was out of consensus. Forget about Captain Obviously a month ago. I'm talking about six months ago. Yeah. And so right. And, and John just the other day said, well, Maybe we're going to go to four percent now. So he still thinks rates are going up, and, and and part of the problem, one of the biggest obstacles in this business is oneself. Um, you know, to steal the line from Pogo, paraphrase the line from Pogo. I met the enemy, and it's me. Having the intellectual flexibility, humility to just say I don't know, and so I'd like you to reflect on something, John. Just thinking about how you know, your work. Um, uh, guides you and how it's regime dependent to an extent. Mm-hmm. So you just step back being agnostic saying, Hey, yeah, you know, George, if the regime does shift, yep. He could be right. John Rowe could be right. But having that intellectual flexibility, the humility, that macro awareness to say, okay, this is not the way it always is. And then when you think about what's gone on in markets the last few years and just zoom out as our crypto maxi friends would say, and think about, liquidity trends, valuation trends, market conditions, and how really the last dozen years since the great financial crisis, 
has been an aberration in the scheme in, in the bigger scheme of things. And you know, like you just said, we, we saw all time lows, Captain Obvious, so in rates. Okay, fine. So what that what that implied for sector rotation in the market, kinds of stocks that would do well. I mean, I like to say Jerome Powell made Kathy Wood and his predecessor. It was Janet Yellen. So Janet Yellen and, and Jerome Pelt made Kathy Wood. They're going to kill Kathy Wood. Um, uh, put it a, a more polite way, Michael Guyad, who everyone should follow, Lee Leg uh, report, he says there are no such things as gurus. They're only cycles. And, you know, it's like in football, John. Sometimes if you're, if you're in the right place at the right time, you look like a genius, then you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, you're, you're playing defensive back and, the guy, the quarterback has picks on you and, and, you're, and you're turning the wrong way. And it's like, oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't use a four-letter word. Um, and, 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 and so when you just, there's a question here. I'm, I'm, I'm ranting, but you can talk about whatever part you want of this. But I guess the question really is, when you stand back and you say to yourself, you know, how are the market conditions the last few years different from what they've been historically? And does it look to you like they might be in the process of changing? Uh, can I answer that? Or... No, it's a question for John Carl. Um, I, I, I would say right right now, I don't believe that we're in the in the process of changing. I think we're in the process of testing uh, kind of the bounds and the envelopes of different things. So one of the things that we look at and informs our perspective on risk is an analysis of like the presidential election year cycle. Okay. And one of the things when we, you know, at the beginning of this year, at the end of last year, we highlighted that, you know, mid midterm election year cycles, is, it's, it's the worst of all the four, okay? And the second quarter uh, ends up being a disaster. And you basically get a bottom at the end of June and you get a retest undercut of that at the end of, of um, uh, September. And what's interesting is, is from a, a economic, from a uh, S and P perspective, the best time to be owning stocks throughout the entire four-year cycle is the fourth quarter of a mid-year election year and the first quarter of the pre-election year. And I say this not to be political, but it's like we sit back and we say, you know, we have all of these problems, and we say, you know. Um, you know, the, the administration isn't addressing any of the energy problems and whatever times they, they try to uh, address it, they're addressing it with totally the wrong uh, things. And I guess my point is, is like, I don't know, I think it gets, I think it's about leadership. And I think when you come into some of these things, and I think that leadership change is actually reflected in the presidential election year cycles or, or, around this. So I, I guess I would say to you, George, like, I I kind of stir in the, this whole notion that, you know, um, things are, are, are flexible and things are variable, um, but they, they, they do repeat over and over again. And so as, as much as we sit here and, and I think, you know, are anxious that the long-term uh, things that have dominated are about to change, you know, they're also going to stay the same. And so, uh, I, I guess when I sit back and I say as bearish as I want to be or as, as optimistic as I want to be, I'm, I look out and I say, I got to hold my horses because I've got to survive 
and and protecting my capital until we get to kind of the the end of you know that that potentially that uh, September decline. Um, and I'm saying that because, um, like, I I do believe in um, uh, at at the end of the day, I, I do think that. Uh, you know, there is a longer term competition between open societies and closed societies and uh, th- that uh, dynamic uh, uh, recharge that happens because of elections and because of the free markets and stuff like that. And so um, I-, I don't know. I-, I-, I think that that that's a positive. And so I guess my point is that um, I don't believe that uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a a done deal that that forty year downtrend has to be broken and broken horrifically. Yeah, yeah, John. Uh, yeah, John. No one's saying it's a done deal, and I'm not saying either. But you, but you could imagine you're you're macro aware enough. You're intellectually flexible enough. You know, if if we if we go if we look back, say a year from now, yeah, you're. It turns out there was a regime change. We're gonna say, remember when we were talking in May of 2022? Well. Yeah, those were just to three percent, and they were about to go to four. Like it was so freaking obvious. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but yeah, you could make a scenario, and it's not one of these crazy scenarios. You could say, "Hey, you know what?" Um, as you rightly started to point out, you know, globalization's maybe peaked, and maybe it's kind of running in reverse, and that's been a big source of disinflation. So the dis- that disinflationary impulse goes away. Maybe we get a lot more fiscal stimulus going forward because monetary impulse is going to be you know, less, less strong. That's inflationary. Maybe we're running out of uh, excess production capacity for energy and the oil price is going up for good reason. And, 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 and you know, yeah, we're at one on five right now in WTI, but that's just on the way to much higher prices. Maybe these food things, you know, the, the Fed can't drill for more oil. The Fed can't food, can't grow more grain. I mean, you have all these building blocks in place where plausibly, quite plausibly, you could make a case for sustainably higher interest rates, and so when you, and so I know you don't want to, you don't want to jump the shark, but how do you weigh your data versus? And you may say, "Well, George, that's George being George, it's your narrative, okay?" But certainly, the more re- like, like John, if you see a tsunami coming to soon to a theater near you, and okay, tsunamis are rare, I get it, all right, but it'd be like, wait a second. The weather forecast says it's supposed to be nice, but hold on a second. What's that 50-foot wall of water heading towards me? Okay, so now you look at what's happening, as I said, to food and, and, and energy and globalization and all this other stuff. You'd be like, hmm, wait a second. Maybe there is something really going on here, and maybe the market's speaking to me. At what point, in other words, at what point, there's a question here, do you cry uncle and say, you know what, that was then, now is now, or do you wait for price to confirm? I, I, I'm... I wait for price to confirm. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, and and you may just call me, um, you know, like a lowbrow knuckle dragging, you know, football player, or whatever, like that. But I think I think you have to wait for your trends to confirm. I mean, I, I really do. As much as I'm I'm sitting here saying, hey, I think we're at an inflection point in terms of risk assets. You know, the trend is lower, and you're not going to know. So for for us, the simple like, oh, we're okay is, you know, we've got, um, you know, that short term kind of 4165, but like the S&P 500 has got to be trading comfortably above its one year moving average just to confirm that long term trend. Like that, that to me is going to be like, that's, that's 
when you should be breathing a sigh of relief and you say, okay, we've digested some of this stuff. Right now we're in a, in a massive digestion phase. So I, I, that would be my, you know, um, simple metric of saying, when are we okay? As long as we're above the one-year moving average in the S&P 500, we're okay, and you should trust that trend. Right. When, you're, when you're below it, you should say, you know what, I, I can afford not to play. Right. So, John, that makes a lot of sense. So just given that you're kind of glass half full and glass half empty, can you just go on the way back machine, looking back over the last year, um, you know, you were probably bullish when it was right to be bullish. And I was probably prematurely bearish, like no yeah. surprise there. But did you get bearish at the right time or did you kind of overstay your walk about the party? So, so at the end of December of last year, we came out with a, you know, it's time to hedge. It's, it's, um, we weren't, we, uh, we were not, Hey, we're going to have a, a you know a double-digit sustainable decline in terms of risk assets. But like our work on the presidential cycle said that this year is going to be a totally punk year. Our analysis in terms of the three-year rate of change on the S and P 500 being totally unsustainable, you know, it was absolutely on the mark. So um, we pulled in our our horns quite a bit at you know in, in December. So. You know, like we keep we keep score in terms of 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 our stuff. So we we run something that we call an idea hopper, and it's like, oh, I think this looks attractive. These are my bullet points as to why. And you know, we we talk in terms of risk units. So we have one risk unit, two risk units, three risk units. So if we put on one risk unit, basically we get the a third of the return of whatever the instrument is. Two risk units, we get two thirds. One risk unit, uh, three risk units, we get the full. So, you know, and it's, it's not a, a, it's not a real, um, you know, did you buy it here? Did you sell it here? All that kind of like, we, we keep track of all that stuff. And so, you know, despite the fact that the market's gotten totally hammered and we've been over hedged, you know, we're, we're up on the year relative to our total ideas. So we're, we're positive. So we're not, and, and I'm saying that as a, you know, I really feel more comfortable being bullish as opposed to bearish. I find that I don't make a lot of money being bearish. That's just that's just that's just me. So um, I don't know. Yeah. Does that answer? Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I'm 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 reliably informed that it's better to go through life being an optimist. So there. Um, all right, let's go to uh, let's go to Crypto Bull. Hey, Crypto Bull, what's up? Yes. Hey, George. Thank you for letting me speaking. I'm quite good, even though. And crypto is not that fine, but I have a question for uh, John. Yeah, um, we haven't talked that much about the big elephant in the room, which mm -hmm. is inflation. And uh, you know, I we have so many data regarding inflation over the last months. Uh, until two years ago, no nobody was talking, and now we are analyzing this is if it's sticky, if it's not sticky, if it's services, goods, whatever. Mm -hmm. So. I have a theory, obviously, like everyone, but uh, are you analyzing some data regarding inflation? What do you think uh, we're going to be at the end of the year? Because this is a big implication for the politics of central banks. And uh, I don't know, do you like to do some study regarding demand-driven inflation versus supply-driven inflation? 
And uh, yeah, that's my first question. And then I would have another one. You said, if I if I did understand correctly, that usually the worst uh, period in a midterm election is the end of June and the end of September. Yeah. So that, that means that we should have a rally in between. And uh, if you have some data regarding this rally, how long do they last in weeks? How big is the jump? Obviously, every situation is different. You know, maybe we might be in a regime change, but who knows? You know, I would be interested in hearing more about this. Thanks. Sure. Um, so in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the midterm election year, um, the the low, if we believe on this, so what we, what we end up doing is we take in all the years and then we create a, um, a composite of those. And then we, we run a, uh, a volatility analysis on that composite and that identifies turn dates for us. And so the turn date on the, on the bottom in terms of June is, uh, June 25th, the peak date in, uh, is uh, August 23rd, and then the low uh, is uh, September 29th. So I, I don't know. So it, it, and none of these things are perfect, right? This is this is, you know, uh, you know, uh, you're putting your kind of. I mean, it's a data-based analysis, but you're kind of putting your finger in the air and saying, "Oh, what do you kind of think?" So could it be could it be connected with uh, options? You know. It, it, it could be, but the, the, yes, and I'm and I would say, number one, I don't know, and number two is is that you know this is a little bit like you know I see I see the clouds getting, uh, you know, gray and dark, and I I know that it's going to rain, but I, I don't really know why. Um, so I can see this and I can point out the data. I, I don't have a narrative that that in terms of the why that is. The only thing that I can think of in terms of of the rally at the end of uh, of September is number one. It's normal seasonal. Um, you get the it's it's typical seasonal uh, flows. Number one, and then number two is that you're past the, uh, the kind of the midterm elections, and so you don't have the uncertainty of uh, you know who's in charge and what's going to be happening uh, post then. And so if you believe in you know uh, hey you know, you're going to get this, uh, shift in terms of, uh, the incumbent party versus the out of power party. And then the out of power party comes in and says, well, all those things that haven't been addressed, which are being reflected in punk returns this year, economically, we've got a plan for that. And then that, that ends up building confidence that that's a narrative that maybe I can, I can kind of, uh, get down with like, that would make sense to me. But, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's me looking at the data and saying, you know, let me string some words around why that might be true. I, I, I don't know. Um, so that's that would be one. And two is, is we don't typically. So we've done some studies. We look at. A, uh, um, uh, so that's one Two in terms of of inflation. Um, and, and I and I don't George, I don't know if we've we've ever talked about this, but. I kind of think that that um, official inflation is kind of a kind of a BS number because, you know, um, for, for a host of different reasons in terms of, you know, different heuristic choices that have got to be made and all that kind of stuff and and, and whatever. But it looks to me as if um, the work that we've done in some of the industrial commodities, uh, copper in particular, suggests that the uh, that there's more risk to the downside as opposed to the upside. That's one of those uh, things that, 
you know, if it get we get a rally back up that I, I think, uh, you know, makes sense to kind of take the other side of. Uh, so that'd be number one. Um, uh, so that, that's what I'm going to be monitoring. And then number two is, is that, um, you know, and, and maybe we've, we've short circuited the, um, uh, the historical relationship in terms of energy, which is typically, um, you know, the cure for high energy, uh, prices is high energy prices and the cure for low energy prices is low energy prices. But it seems like, you know, uh, not only uh, American producers, uh, but, you know, OPEC has kind of gotten religion and said, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. And we're going to, you know, uh, as we make this transition into these new energy uh, 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 regime, then, you know, we're going to treat this as not as a long-term asset, but as a short-term asset. And there's no way we're going to be spending billions of dollars to, uh, if, uh, you know, we're, we're going to move away from fossil fuels, you know, over the near term. Or, or over the intermediate slash long term. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know in terms of, of, of inflation. Now, it was, I look at it for like my kids and I'm like, oh, what's a great investment for my kids? I do look at like these Series I bonds and I'm like that for 10, for 10 grand to be able to throw some money in there, I think makes just a total lot of sense with the, um, so I, I don't know. We, I haven't spent enough, t- enough time specifically looking at inflation I've got a lot of, of things that suggest that um, the Fed's work is being accomplished, and I think their work is to lower aggregate demand. I think they're being successful. I see what's going on in Europe. Uh, you know, we've had the benefit. Uh, I don't know if you guys have looked at the dollar, but the dollar has been incredibly strong. So, you know, with the benefit of the dollar, our energy prices haven't been, you know, totally ridiculous. If you are in Europe. You're getting absolutely pummeled, and it's it's been a, an absolute disaster in terms of your total input. You know, if you look at at um, the Japanese, they've had a huge problem in terms of that stuff too. So so the the yen has been a, is is tremendously a problematic. So I look at this stuff and I think you know um, aggregate demand is probably going to be lower, and I believe that's eventually going to feed back into um, inflation. And I think that's why I think that's why. Um, the yield curve is kind of as flat as it is. Yes, yes. John, let me ask you one question. You just touched on something which I thought was uh, really important and um, want to go a little bit further. Okay. So the yen is weakened dramatically. Yeah. The Chinese yuan and a lot of the Asian currencies have also sold off. And to me, that's very interesting and meaningful. And I see a strong dollar in a weak. When you see a, when you see when you see a weak yen and a weak, it's a very bizarre constellation of things. All things being equal, which they never are, a weak RMB would mean weaker commodity prices, and maybe that's what we'll get. I don't know. But can you speak to whatever intermarket relationships that you've seen or done studies on recently with respect to currencies? If you don't have an opinion, that's fine. But so, so, think, so yeah, and what it portends for growth and commodity prices and markets. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, we have done some work on the U.S. dollar index, and uh, it's one of these things where you know the trend is your friend, and kind of the the global mac. And I say that on an intermediate term kind of a basis. So you take an intermediate term. If you've got to make a prognostication for what do you think this thing's going to be higher or lower one month out. 
you know, you can you can take it at, a look at it versus an intermediate term moving average, and you're above or below it. That's probably right. So that's number one. Number two is is that the dollar. If you put up a, a chart of the dollar index, it's coming into an area where it's offered significant resistance historically. Uh, uh, you know, it looks to me as if it it might go, uh, you know, much higher. And I think the the question when we talk about like the at least for the dollar index, um, and I'm not. I, I'm not really the, the currency guy within our team. George, I know you give me credit for being the entire brains of Nautilus. That's, that's, that's not accurate. Um, but uh, the reality of things is, is that the, the, the primary um, composition of the dollar index is, is the euro. So part of it is the euro has been so weak, therefore the dollar index has been so strong. Um, and you know, I think it's one of these things where the dollar is – Historically, um, you know, when when uh, macroeconomic uh, anxiety hits the world, uh, the dollar is strong, and so it's not terribly surprising to me that the dollar is strong. What's weird is is that, and or maybe it's not that weird, is that um, rates have been going higher, and the dollar has been stronger. Number one, but you know, maybe that's all about, uh, there's still a large, uh, uh, interest rate differential between U S interest rates and, uh, like European rates and stuff like that. So, you know, you know, in this, in this world where, Hey, I want stability and I'm, I'm scared of what's going to happen as all this liquidity is drained from the global system. Um, like you, you sit here and, and, um, I, I don't know what the global makeup of, of the folks that are listening here is, but like, as Americans, we're sitting here and we are, um, you know, relatively wealthy. And so if, uh, y- you know, the price of gasoline goes up by 100%, you know, that's a bummer, but it's not the end of the world. If um, uh, the price of grain doubles, it's, it's inconvenient, but it's not the end of the world. Um, if you're in different countries where your living standards and your, your average income is much, much lower, it is the end of the world. It's a tremendous problem, whether or not whether you're in, you know, uh, in you know Southeast Asia or uh, Africa or different parts of South America. Like, there's going to be there's going to be problems that all of this inflation is going to mean, and we may weather it okay, but I think it's going to mean uh, a, honestly a lot of suffering for a lot of people that 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 don't have the economic wherewithal to uh, to deal with it. So I, I don't know. John, it's really interesting. Um, so when we talk about regime changes, and you know from your work, um, correlations change as well. Yep. So if someone had told you for fifty dollars in double jeopardy a year ago, eighteen months ago, the dollars would be very strong, and you ran all these studies. What does it mean for um, commodity prices, as an example? Yeah. Would that not be an example of, I don't want to use regime as maybe too strong a word, but correlations flipping where sometimes, you know, relationships aren't always static. Sometimes they're dynamic. And I totally get what you're saying. Well, George, I can't anticipate. I don't want to anticipate that. But wouldn't those back-tested studies back then, if you said, okay, the dollar is going to do this, therefore commodity prices are going to do that, wouldn't that have one led one to the wrong conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd sit there and said, 
well, if you know if the dollar is going to going to have a, the the move that it's had, my expectation is is that commodities would be lower. Um, not you know not what we've had currently. Right. Right. And also, leave the yen out. I'm mean, sorry. Leave leave the euro out. They have their specific problems. There, obviously, with yeah the tragic situation in the Ukraine. But let's just focus on the yen and the RMB and the Asian currencies. What information content or predictive value, using your backtesting uh, capability, what would you normally expect to see? I mean, I have my narrative, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna voice that upon you. I want to make it a totally neutral question. I have, obviously, have an answer in mind. But if I showed you weak Asian currencies, all things being equal, which they never are. How that inform your view about commodity prices and global growth and inflation going forward? Uh, weak Asian currencies versus the dollar would mean to me that global aggregate demand is going to be problematic uh, historically. Um, that would be that. that that's I, I would leave it at that and say that it was just just it it means that uh, uh, global GDP growth is going to have a problem. Well, it's interesting. Well, a, you get a prize because that's the right answer, is my opinion. <laughs> B, the smartest Asian investor I know, it's exactly what he was bending my ear about the other day, which is kind of nice because it checks the box across uh, uh, what other people have been saying, most notably Michael Kantrowitz. And we had Ian Harnett in the room the other day from ASR Research in London, one of the brightest guys I know, and that's his call. He's looking for a significant slowdown, if not recession. So, I thank you for that. All right, so let's go to uh, Bikram, and then Def Profit, and then Jeff. Hey, Bikram, what's up? You have a question? Please unmute yourself. Hi, I have a question. Uh, if I if if we follow the Goldman Sachs U.S. financial condition in, index, it is still low, and uh, the current market consensus is if Fed doesn't see around hundred one and hundred two, they will not budge what they are doing. They may go up to point zero seven five also. So only way currently to reach that value is S&P 3000 to 3500. So although we agree with you that the short term oversold condition is there, so more or less we'll get like 2008 where uh, we get a correction now and then we get the fi final washout. What do you think? Um, I mean, number one, I think... It's really hard to say that you know. I think three thousand is a big is a big bet on <laughs> the downside. Um, no, no. Why I'm saying three thousand because what is difference now with the past thing with the, this financial conduct condition index, which I think uh, Chair Powell is very much on that value. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bikram, let me interrupt. Bikram, John, yeah. forget about three thousand. Don't don't get triggered by that number. Okay. The question really implies the gist of it is. You know, the Fed wants the market to go down. They want the market to go down because it's the main it's it's the means by which they're gonna tighten financial conditions. So just as people say don't fight the Fed when the market's down and you know the economy's gonna be slow and earnings suck, it's don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. They're gonna reliquify. And now I think what the question is suggesting is it's exactly the opposite. So all the apologists, and I'm now gonna tar tag you with that one, the sort of pseudo permables, like if, if, if the mantra is don't fight the Fed on the way up, well, why, 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 what happens don't fight the Fed? The Fed's told you they want the market to go down, John. How would you respond to that? Uh, I would respond with 
you know, the market's not trading at, you know, 4,800. You know, the S- we've already had a, a, a revaluation in terms of stuff. You know, the two-year has had a 260-point rally off the low. You know, uh, it's not what the Fed is doing. It's what the market's doing. So to me, the most important question is what's priced in? You know, uh, have are um, futures rates? I don't care about the what the the Fed funds uh, is going to do, but are, are the futures on um, interest rates are they appropriately pricing in? All, everybody knows what the Fed's going to do. I, I I think I think that's the question is is whether or not whether the Fed is priced in or not, and I, I'm going to say. You know, you know, glass half full. That after the, uh, you know, Russell's had a twenty-seven and a half, thirty percent decline. My guess is is that people are pretty well aware that that the Fed's raising rates. Yeah, but John, okay, now, okay, now we're going to battle here. Here we go. So that's like saying to me, that's that's sort of like the same thing as well. You know, rates have gone up a lot. Yeah, from the most <laughs> early low level, the lowest level of rates in recorded history in five thousand years. So that doesn't tell you anything about whether rates are at the right level. And so if I say to you, that'd be like saying, you know, if we're sitting there in uh, the middle of, uh, of uh, say, 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 say in, the, in the fall of, of 2000, yeah. and NASDAQ already just went down 20%, be like, oh, George, it's already down. You're talking rate of change. I'm talking absolute levels. You would have said, oh, well, it's already down 20%. I'm like, yeah, from the most ridiculous bubble in the history, in, in, in recorded history. So, Rate of change doesn't cut it for me. And I think what the, what the questioner is implying, forget about rate of change. Even though we've had that change, financial conditions are still too easy. And equities are not cheap, not the valuation counts for anything. Equities are not cheap by historical standards. So if the answer is financial conditions need to tighten, because that's what the Fed says, whether or not you agree they should, that's what they want to. And a primary means by which they're going to use to implement or encourage tighter financial conditions is having the market go down more. Like checkmate, friend. Like, how would you respond to that? So, number one, I would agree with you in terms of valuations, and I think that that's a, a more than a reasonable argument, right? If you sat back and said, "Hey, you know, I, I think we should be trading at, you know." With everything that's going on in terms of uh, of rates and uh, what the Fed's doing, the number for twenty twenty three isn't two fifty. It's really you know two and a quarter, you know sixteen times that, you know thirty six hundred. Like I don't know. Like I guess that's that's part of the, the 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 question in terms of that. So my point is is that there's 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 not a lot of insulation. In terms of the current valuation scheme, so so I agree with you. So on on terms of valuation, number one, um, and number two is, I don't know. I think I, I think it's an open question as to whether or not the Fed's going to be uh, is going to be able to do what they're 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 going to do. Right? I mean, what happens if um, I don't know? I look I, I look at I look at China. I look at what's going on in terms of the the the, the property situation there. It looks like they may have a, a, a real problem. You know, forget about what's going on in terms of COVID and the, and the different lockdowns. But like g- global growth coming out of, of China is going to be a lot lower. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I, I believe that 
um, you know, uh, conditions are already very tight. I think when people go to the gas pump and they see what gas prices are currently, I think their uh, disposable income is already going to is, is going to have an impact. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is, is, is like, um, you know, is this a commodity or is this a stock? Are the stocks really forward looking or they're not really that forward looking? I think they're forward looking or they've historically been forward looking. No, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's a very thoughtful answer. All right, let's move on. Let's go to Def Profit, Jeff, and then Michael. Def Profit, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Yeah, hi. Um, everything is okay. Um, actually, I don't have much to say, so I'm just listening today. Okay, so, great. Yeah. You, and I, you and I should talk offline later. Good, good to Yes. Good, good to just hear. Call. Yeah, have a good day. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? What's going on? Hey, good. How are you? Good. What's going on, man? I started listening to you guys when I was walking my dogs, and I walked them for an hour, and I was, you guys are still going. So I figured I'd ask a couple of questions. Um, first question is, um, do you see anything out of the Thursday and Friday rally that lets you think it's a little different than what we've had before in this downturn in April and May? Um, right now, I, what we typically look for uh, in terms of, of, of our stuff, we, we look for like confirmation days. I, I, I think it's too early to tell whether or not um, uh, it's anything more than, than um, my, my, I guess my preference is, is that uh, I think that Thursday you're getting close to a low. I don't know after we've had a little bit of this move up, you know, I guess it just depends on how much volatility you can, you can swallow. Um, but I haven't seen anything that necessarily says uh, that this is something different versus versus not. Um, like, in, uh, George, have you seen anything in terms of market rotation that says to you that hey, you know, the strength on the reversal on on Thursday and the strength on Friday is 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 something you know internally that you'd be reading into? I I I, I don't look at it. Absolutely, right now and say absolutely, not absolutely not i mean yeah yeah some stuff is slammed so hard i mean i'm looking at some of this crap i said earlier at the top of the show you know r could go to 60 i don't think it will but this shit got slammed so hard we're so far oversold like this is a lot of stuff can bounce 10 15 it doesn't matter this is, so the answer is no i don't see anything different john yeah I, I i don't see anything right now that leads me to believe relative to um you know volume or uh, participation or market rotation that you know outside of some of the extreme studies that 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 we've done uh which have kind of been accumulating uh but like relative to to handicapping the quality of the rally i i don't see anything right now that leads me to believe that um uh that, that reinforces the notion that this is a primary low or or the or the the possibility that this is a primary low so so no and Jeff, what was the second question? So, um, so John, um, I take it then that for you, it's only getting above forty-one sixty-five is your your litmus test, correct? Uh, I think it's got and it's got to stay above there. I mean, the pro- so so my problem, honestly, is is that I have a hard time. I think if you got to be bullish on this market, you've got to believe. Uh, You've got to believe that uh, estimates for next year are accurate, and you've got to be willing to throw, 
you know, like an 18 multiple on that, which gets you to like 4,500. I, I, I think if you've got to be like uh, fundamentally bullish, you've got to believe that. And I guess the problem that I'm having is, is that I think a fair multiple for the S&P is something like 16 to 17 times. And so I, I, I don't know. Like I, I think that there's more risk. I we, everybody talks S&P, but I think there's more risk in some of these large cap growth names than there is in some of these small cap beaten up names. And so my preference is to say, you know, despite the notion that um, the small cap is a higher beta kind of a, a vehicle, but my preference honestly is, is to, to, if you're going to be looking at this, I'd be looking at something in, you know, the Russell 2000 kind of a, of, of a venue. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if we get above 3165 and we can maintain that, then, then I'm going to look back and say, see, George, I told you, you got to pay attention to all these things. Right. Um, so, so, so that's great. Hey, Jeff, I know you've been under the weather, but and so I don't know how much you've been looking at screens, but you want, oh, to, lob I, in, you want to lob in any observations of your, of your own, Jeff? Well, I still got a couple, a couple more questions. Um, so on the recession stuff that you were talking about, um, we're more than halfway there already because we already had a negative quarter in the first quarter and the second quarter, there's probably a decent shot that it ends up being negative as well. So then by the traditional definition of a recession, we're already there. But when I was like listening to you, um, you weren't kind of like acknowledging that. And I'm just kind of curious why that is. And I, I think it also comes into play that a lot of people don't even consider what happened in the first quarter and the second quarter of, of 2020 to be a recession, even though by the same definition it was because it was really a March um, the last month of the first quarter in April, the first month of the second quarter event. So I'm just kind of curious um, why so dismissive of the fact that we are going to be in a recession, um, you know, once we get the second quarter numbers in, you know, the middle part of July. I, I, I guess because I feel like that's a, a uh, number one, I don't, I'm not make, I don't make, uh, I don't try to handicap like, economic stuff. There's a difference in my mind between the economy and the stock market, right? So like if we have a recession, so what? Like what does that mean for uh, S&P returns on a go forward basis? Like I look at it and I say, you know, there was something that was going on in 2015 that, you know, to me was recession like, but there was no recession in 2015. So I, 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 I and that's not to be, and I apologize if I come off as being dismissive, but I, I don't know if it's if it's additive relative to trying to um, uh, make a guess relative to uh, returns in terms of the market. That 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 would be I don't know. That's uh, you know maybe I should be more uh, economically minded, but I, I end up being more markets focused. You were really good, and actually I agreed with you 100 percent on something you said. You were talking about the bigger pullbacks and the chances of uh, recession. One thing that I looked at from 1980 forward is the idea that um, once you've moved up 50% and then you get your pullback, um, do you get a recession or do you not get a recession? And the categorization, we've had six of those moves, by the way, since, um, since, the, since the beginning of 1980. And the only one that didn't result in a, in a recession was 1980 to 1987 move. And then we had the 87 crash and we never got a recession out of it, but every other one that we've had, um, you got a, re you got a recession out of it, even though most people aren't, again, aren't considering 
what happened in the first and second quarter of 2020 to be quote unquote a recession. So um, you kind of, you kind of gave actually the re- uh, really correct answer about it. So um, would you then agree? Because again, this move is one of the six moves that was more than a 50% move, you know, so we take it from the, um, the 2020 low to the high it was it's more than a 50% move. So um, that puts the odds extremely high. So are you putting, are you, are you willing to put the odds at extremely high right now for a recession or not? I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, but I, I, it wouldn't shock me. Number one, but, but number two, number two is, is like, I, I look at it and I think to myself, you know, I, I don't think anybody's really prepared for what's it going to cost to heat your home next winter. If, you know, heating oil remains at these levels, you know, 75% of the economy is consumer spending and, you know, inputs, you know, there's going to be, uh, a lot of things that are going to be um, pushed out just because people have got to get from place to place. They're going to have to buy gasoline uh, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I guess the Jeff, the problem that I'm having with, with the um, recession, like, and I sure we can have a recession, but I don't know, like, I don't necessarily, I, I don't know what that necessarily implies for um, returns on a go forward basis. Like let's say, let's say like based on this decline that we've had in the S and P, we should have a recession in the next 18 months. We should have a recession. Right. But just because we're going to have a recession doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad time to be buying the S&P. John, that, that's fair. That's fair. Hey, Jeff, you got any more questions? Otherwise, I want yeah. To yeah. One last question. So I was listening to a really interesting podcast earlier this week with uh, Keith McCullough and um, the guy who wrote um, Currency Wars. Jim, I can't think of his last name now. Anyway, what came up with was really interesting which no one is talking about, which he, he was talking about, um, is the idea of contagion. So you have market downturn, correction, whatever you want to call it, bear market. Um, you've got almost every asset class in the world, X, certain commodities, um, and currencies are definitely in it. And his, his thinking is that we're potentially moving towards contagion. And I'm curious if you've done any work on that. And it, it's, it's mind-boggling that I haven't heard really anyone. Um, George, I haven't listened to you a ton lately, but I, I, I probably doubt that you've been in the camp of calling for a, a contagion at this point. Yeah, Je- Jeff, let me just say, so I'm not that smart. I just like to listen to smart people like John and yourself and the brilliant Michael Howe, who um, has actually been more right than anybody on this whole market cycle. And he always talks about volatility moving like, you know, could start in currency markets, then goes to fixed income markets, then goes to um, equity markets. And so he's been banging that drum for a long time. So I think that question's spot on. So I guess, John, the question is, you know, the correlation or connection between increasing volatility in various asset classes. And when you look at for trend uniformity or uniformity of volatility, I mean, obviously, We've seen incredible volatility in fixed income markets yeah. and selected currency markets. And funnily enough, you know, up until recently, equities were the least volatile. So to Jeff's question, Jeff, please be your mic, Jeff, because it's a little noisy. So the question really is about, you know, it's sort of like when you feel an earthquake, a tremor, you get a little ones and then bigger and then bigger that spreads into other things. So the question is really around contagion and, 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 and you know, with something, again, that started out in fixed income markets or currency markets. The fixed income to currencies to equities or currencies to fixed income to equities. Equities like really being the caboose, not not the engine of all this. Any thoughts mm-hmm. about that sequencing, Tom? I, 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 you know what? I, 
I don't know. I don't have a strong feeling on Contagion. Let's move on because I really want to get other speakers in here. So if any thoughts on Contagion, otherwise we'll go to Michael. No. Okay. All right. Hey, Michael, good, 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 to, good to see you. Good to hear from you. What's on your mind, Michael? Uh, congratulations to you and Carl. You are doing God's work. Thank you very you much. Know Thank you very much. Uh, a very interesting conversation. Uh, I would like to make a quick comment uh, for my question. We all know the macro setups have very small samples. Like we had so many recessions. How many, George? So we had like seven recessions uh, from the 70s? Or... Uh, yeah, something like that. I mean, John Carl's yeah. the data. But yeah, it's a lot. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just one stagflation uh, period. And uh, uh, how do you deal with these uh, small samples? I mean, uh, uh, we all know the financial markets are distributed in power laws, and uh, and uh, you need uh, very large samples, very, very large, like in the thousands, to have any statistical significance uh, for any calls you make. Uh, uh, like uh, backtesting with small samples is like a spurious correlation. So uh, uh, does uh, John have any any way of dealing with these uh, realities? I mean, uh, this is uh, statistically indisputable that uh, the small samples uh, cannot uh, generate any, any uh, statistically significant results. That's my question, George, only. Uh, nice work, George. I appreciate it, Michael. I appreciate all you do and your comments. And uh, by the way, are, are you in New York City, Michael? Are you in New York? No, 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 no. Okay, because maybe no now. <laughs> Since now. long time. Okay, right. it's it's not for me anymore. <laughs> right. hey, 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 John, you got a question? You got an answer for Michael's question? Yeah, I I think the the answer is is we 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 work with what we have. Like I to I totally get it. You'd love to have as many iterations as you possibly can, and uh, anytime you you know try to isolate a piece of data from uh, you know a, a particular experience from the whole, you know unless you're getting you know thousands and thousands of results. Like I think that that's I I get that, but uh, you know. At the end of the day, we're looking at um, different days and different time frames in terms of that stuff. I think it's just you've got to uh, uh, acknowledge that with open eyes with respect to appreciating some of our our, our work and analysis. That's great. It's too, John, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We're going on two hours. You're welcome to stay. I think this has been a great room. Um, I don't know what else you're doing today, but if you're looking for a graceful out, you've been more than generous with your time. So I don't know if you want to stay. You want to. You want to. You want to. You want to call it. Take two more questions to be done. But uh, why don't we? Why don't we take? Why don't we take a couple more questions and then and then we'll we'll call it if that's okay. So we will do that. Uh, we'll take two more questions and then you're dismissed. And then we'll go on to th other things. If anyone wants me to talk crypto and Palo Arduino, um, please raise your hand. You know, send me a smoke signal or send me a direct message. I normally don't like to talk crypto, but we had some incredible news in the last day or two on Luna and that extraordinary interview. I got so lucky I managed to come face to face with uh, the chief technical officer of the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. It was an epic, epic, epic uh, interview yesterday. You can go on my Twitter feed. It's insane. Uh, last I looked, there were over 400,000 views. Um, this is going to go down in history. This is Enron all over again. 
Um, and anyone who listens to that clip that doesn't understand that Tether is the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world, and it's only a question of time before it blows up with all the attendant consequences for crypto generally, and that includes Bitcoin, then, you know, I can't help you. I mean, to me, it is just a complete freaking disaster. It's a volcano waiting to blow. I'm happy to discuss it. Uh, send me a direct message, though. And I don't want these crypto Bitcoin maxis chiming in with their comments. I'm happy to go through. We might put Palo Arduino on trial, actually, uh, if people want me to do that. That's always a lot of fun. We, 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 we put Kathy Wood on trial a couple months ago, and she was, she was uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. She's still serving time uh, with, with no chance for parole. Uh, the stock is down 50% since we did that. Um, and I'm happy to go through the Tether um, uh, case if people are interested. Um, and so, uh, Philip, we'll go to you, and then we're going to go to Invest2. Philip, welcome. Good to see you. What's your question, Philip? Hey, George. Um, thanks for doing these. And um, so I have a question, but first a comment on the, on the Tether thing. I'm... Uh, as a former auditor, the idea that these guys won't, I mean, auditing cash or, or those kinds of liquid instruments is about the easiest thing in the world to do. And there's literally no excuse for those guys not, not doing that. So gr great, great job calling those guys out. So here's my question, right? Uh, George, you've talked a lot about Hussman's work, right? In, in, in so far as, um, you know, the next 12 years, of returns are likely to go nowhere based on the current valuations. Um, you've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, don't fight the Fed on the upside. And, um, and certainly we shouldn't be fighting the Fed on the downside, right? Powell and the Fed has uh, discussed extensively that they, they want and need the market down. Uh, Zoltan came out with a piece yesterday uh, essentially reaffirming that. And although he didn't call out a specific, level um, of the S&P 500, clearly it's to the downside. Um, if you look at Howard Marks' work, right, uh, the markets work in a pendulum fashion. So just like we, um, we went way, way, way too high to the upside in terms of valuations, uh, in a correction, we're likely to overcorrect to the downside, right? So everything in my bones and, and, you know, a lot of the folks, yourself included, um, have a feeling that, that we have a lot more downside to go. So here's my question, right? I always try to think of wh why am I wrong, right? Like I have so much conviction on the bearish side, but why am I wrong? And it brings me to, um, and John, this is where I'd, I'd love to, to hear your perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So Reinhardt and Rogoff, um, you know, wrote a book called This Time is Different. And uh, and there's actually some papers that IMF is, has published. Uh, Reinhardt uh, co-authored one of those called The Liquidation of Government Debt. And essentially what this paper and the book articulate very clearly, empirically going back hundreds of years, is that any sovereign that's gotten to the levels of debt uh, that, that we have here in the U.S. or Japan have liquidated that through either a hard default, right? Third world countries, they just, they just don't pay their debt. They, they go to the INF World Bank at a bailout. But bigger sovereigns uh, do it through financial repression. And so that brings me to inflation rate, right? So we're at 8.5% today. And, you know, the work 
from Reinhardt and Rogoff suggests that, you know, running inflation hot, not 2%, but as little as 3 or 4% a year for five years, seven years, you effectively inflate the debt away. And so, you know, I couple that with the fact that I never believe what the Fed is actually saying because it's, it's, you know, word salad, if you will. And so I'm curious if you think there's an, uh, you, you know, what's the probability that the Fed is actually in a great spot because they can tighten financial conditions a little bit, but keep the inflation running hot for a number of years. And it fixes a lot of big picture macro issues. So we haven't done a huge amount of respect for uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Um, number one, uh, number two is, I, I, I feel like that's the, you know, that's the definition of the, of, of the playbook for most governments, right? The, the, the problem or just the observation is, is that, um, you know, you can borrow in dollars that are, you know, this size and you can pay them back in dollars that are much, much smaller in terms of value. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? And, and for you know, 99% of the, the population, no one knows, no one really appreciates that the value of the dollar in their pocket is, you know, declining as rapidly as it is, you know? Um, so I, I, I agree. I, I mean, 100%. So, so, John, the question would be then, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, shorting the S&P and just going on summer vacation and and you know buying buying you know the dollar index right so dollar higher s p lower and maybe you know short short some of the the base metal miners but how is that how is the notion that powell could slow roll this right so everybody thinks 50 basis points 75 basis points 50 basis points whatever what if what if he slows down what if he wants inflation to come down much more slowly over a longer period of time? What implication does that have for um, for the dollar, for interest rates, and for the S and P? I would argue that's why they're so far behind the curve to begin with, right? I mean, you don't get you don't get you know uh, a, a period of time where the Fed's talking about um, you know we're going to get to three percent by the end of the year like oh my god like that's that's you know we haven't seen that kind of a kind of a um uh uh you know an acceleration in uh you know in rates over such a short period of time so so number you know but i i i think you know to put my tinfoil hat on is that when all these dollars were being printed in you know 2020 of course, they're going to inflate this thing away, and the Fed's going to let it go, and the Fed's, Fed's going to let uh, the economy run as hot as it can. And um, I think I think that's I think that's the intelligence that's baked in this into the system and has been baked in for years and years. So my my two cents on that one, if I could tag team, I agree with hundred percent, John. They engage in open mouth operations, but what's happening, and Philip, to your question. More specifically, I think the uh, bond market vigilantes are making a comeback. Um, they were on the endangered species list. In fact, they were they were extinct, and now they're back. 
And if you look at the outlook for the fiscal position of the United States, for you about in the very short run, tax revenue has gone through the roof. Seasonally, it always happens this time of year anyway. Plus, the economy has been in pretty decent shape, backward looking. But looking forward prospectively, you have a huge amount of supply coming in a time when, think about it, if you're a foreign investor and you're looking at how over how expensive the dollar is, so if you buy a dollar asset, you, know, probably look, you, know, you may be thinking you're looking at a currency loss. Combined with the fact that Bonds and John, this this is narrative not going against all the data that you so eloquently portray. <laughs> of course, no, no, but but hear me out. This besides everything, and and this is not. I'm not. You notice my. I'm not screaming and yelling, but just think about it logically. You're a foreign investor. Dollar looks kind of expensive. Then you say, okay, I'm going to buy a bond, and you say, well, wait a second, what's the real interest rate I'm getting? That sucks. And then you look at the supply. Like ton of supply, real rates are historically nothing. It depends on what inflation you want to look at. But yeah. if you're a transitory guy, maybe it's not so bad. But if you're not a transitory guy, you'd say this is horrible. In fact, you're still running a very stimulative policy. Banks are buying less bonds, and the central bank is going from QE to QT. So to me, the supply demand situation just looks horrendous. Real rates are still low. The policy rate, Fed funds, is still wildly stimulative. And I'll just caution everyone about this idea that it's transitory. You know, the people that are yelling it's transitory are the same ones who said it peaked months ago. They have zero credibility. Why would you listen to them? They want it to be transitory. But the best example, in all the second derivative bullshit, people say, well, you know, the place of oil is... It's up at 110, and if it goes flat for the next few months, you know, blah, 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 sequentially, it's not going up. You're totally missing the point. First of all, the price of oil has a very good chance of going much higher, in my opinion. It's just an opinion. The only reason it's not going to go a lot higher, in my opinion, is because we have a recession. But I think we're looking at a very uh, challenged supply situation in oil. Again, the Fed can't grow more wheat. We all know the official CPI numbers are fake. Owner's equivalent rent, the shelter component of CPI, which I think is 30% of the CPI, showed only a 5% year-on-year increase when the real number is more like 25%. So just penciling 20% on 30, that's telling you the inflation rate instead of being CPI, instead of being 8 and change, it's probably 14 and change. And there are responsible people I follow, like Larry Jetalo, who are arguing inflation is actually going to go higher in the coming months. So this idea that inflation is peaking right now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But even if it is sequentially, it's the wrong question. I like Jim Bianco's definition of transitory. Transitory is a level whereby if the Fed does nothing, it will go down. And the problem is you still have you know, food, food prices without question in my mind are going to accelerate to the upside from here. Energy, I believe probably without a recession, I believe will. We spoke before about the owner's equivalent rent that has to filter into the CPI. You also have acceleration wage gains because the, the labor market's overheating. So I understand people want inflation to go down because they can then, you know, tell happy stories about the bond market and stocks. 
I would say I'll make an assertion. I mean, there's a speech here, John. I know I'm on my I'm on my vote, <laughs> but but John, John, what would you say to the idea that I mean, I don't see how you could. I don't, I'm not saying you literally. I don't see how one can buy stocks here unless bond unless you unless one wants to buy bonds. Oh, George, okay. George, there's no okay. I don't know if we've had this conversation. No, 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 we haven't. We haven't. Okay, so so first off, I, I think that's totally right. Before you can buy stocks, you got to say, I want to buy bonds. Like, if you can't find value in the bond market, you will not be able to find value in the stock market. 100%. Now, I would actually argue, I know it's not the way you look at things. I'm speaking more from a sort of quantitative type fundamental, not, not so much charts. But if you just take a simple dividend discount model, Gordon model or anything, mm -hmm. stocks are more overpriced now than they were four months ago. And what do I mean by that? Just looking at the relationship between stocks and bonds – Stocks have not taken on board fully the derating uh, that um, they should be getting given the meteoric rise of interest rates. So in other words, stocks are still kind of betting on the idea that inflation will come down, rates will come down. And so, uh, you know, compared to bonds, not, not, I'm not talking just on a price basis. Yeah, anyone can put up a chart of, oh, look at the price of stocks, where the price of bonds. I'm saying on a valuation basis, okay, you just take a dividend discount model and, and, and instead of 150 on the 10 year plug in 3% and tell me what you get. Okay. It's a freaking disaster. So this idea that rates are peaking, you know, even if they go, let's put it this way, put it this way. Let's say inflation doesn't go up anymore. I don't believe that, but let's just, let's just, okay. And let's say inflation's seven or six at the end of the year. That's a disaster for the stock market. A disaster. And all these guys who want to go second derivative. Oh no, let's go third derivative. That's horseshit, because because if that happens, inflation six at the end of the year. I promise you, I promise you, the ten years not at two ninety. So so, what we do, George, we've got a little valuation thing, and all we do is we these aren't our numbers. We're just pulling consensus stuff out, and you know I use next twelve month stuff, and I use next twenty four month for for earnings. So, and then I, 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 we create a blend on that. And then we take forward uh, expect, you know, where uh, 10 year rate is on a forward basis and where it is like right now. And then we, we, we basically put a, a, a risk premium on, on top of that. And so, um, and this is why I say I've got a problem with valuation. So, uh, on John, a, on can you, a, John, can you flesh out a little bit? When you go through it, I, mean, I, I, I know that's implicit what I do, but when you go through it independently on your own, Okay, that, so what, so this what, is this what, is what does that suggest to you? Um, so so it means that um, uh, on a multiple, the current multiple right now on that is a is basically sixteen times, and that is with a uh, a, a risk premium of three hundred twenty five basis points. So like like part of this is is like hey, are we just to play devil's advocate? Is like. You know, historically, there's been somewhere between a 300 and a 350 uh, basis, which is a large uh, uh, risk premium um, that you would put on stocks to get to to kind of uh, get the uh, uh, similar valuation for stocks given their uh, higher volatility. Like that's just John. John, John stop. You're better than that. 
You're talking now on sell side. I'm teasing you, dude. Can you just break it down to like plain English for people in the room? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, no, John, stop, stop the equity risk premium bullshit. You sound like some pedantic asshole from Goldman Sachs. Okay? I'm just telling you. I'm just uh, no, what I'm saying right, is this is just a basic. This is just a basic thing. I'm, whatever. No, no, but there's a more basic way to say it. Like speak English to me. Like the multiple. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You said it a few minutes ago. You know, 18 times 250, 4,500. Well, yeah. But hold right. on, hold on. Yeah. Maybe the answer should be 15 times a lower number. Okay. So speak to me in that language. So we all okay. Correct. Okay. So, so 15 times, so a 15 times rate, so 15 times is going to equal, uh, is the inverse of 0.66. Okay. So that means that uh, the 10 the year rate plus the um, risk premium has got to be less than 6.6% for to get to 15 times. So the question is is like if you were if you believe that interest rates are going to go to like 4, you know, like you're you're you know, 15 times becomes a very um uh reasonable expectation. Okay, so, so, so John, I'm going to declare force majeure because the man, the axe, the guy with all the numbers, he just showed up. And if you've not had the pleasure of Michael listening to Michael Cantwood speak, you're now going to because oh great great because he's got all the numbers. This is the number one strategist in the street. He's going to kill me for this leading, but I, I say that earnestly because I really believe that, and I, I love him. You know, it's like John t- talk dirty to me. I'm like Cantro, talk valuations to me. Yeah, no, so, great, love it. Okay, so 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 Cantro, welcome. What's going on, man? Hey, just joined in. I heard interest rates, valuations. Yeah, so 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 Michael, the question is. Don't give us a single point estimate, but give us a framework. Give us a framework for like you know where valuations are and where valuations might go, tr- depending on the tra- trajectory of the economic and earnings cycle that you foresee. Uh, okay, I'll try to keep it simple. So, index valuations are a function of three things: the composition, which is the number one driver of, of the level. More cyclicals, you tend to see lower multiples. Look at the TSX compared to the Nasdaq. The NASDAQ will never be cheaper than the TSX because of composition. The second and third are interest rates, long-term rates. Um, Those are the most inconsistent drivers. I mean, think about every single recovery, rates go up. Then why do valuations go up too? So rates don't really work so well as, you know, trying to pin an equity, you know, an equity yields compared to the Fed model. You know, none of that, that's just garbage. It doesn't work. And then the most important thing that really ultimately drives where valuations are going to go within a given year, irrespective of the levels, is credit spreads. So at the end of the day, the low in the valuation, and this is going to sound stupid, but it's it's just what it is. The low in the valuation is going to happen when we had a, we're at a peak point in risk or whatever problems people are freaking out about, whether it's inflation or rates and slowly that plus a slowing economy with slowing earnings until that fear bottoms out, which usually happens either with an economic bottom or a major policy shift. I can't think of a third way that's ever happened. That's where the PE of the market and the price more importantly will bottom. Is that simple enough, George? Yeah. And Michael, just flesh out a little bit. Where are 22 and 23 earnings estimates and based on your, your projections of ISM and, the tea leaves, like wh- wh- what are SMB earnings that's for 22 and 23, and where do you think they might go to? 2022 is currently at 230 or 231, 
which is pretty much the high end of the range. Granted, energy materials obviously driving the upside, but you haven't really seen much of a downside in sectors. Discretionary has seen the most downside, but a couple percent, you know, barely anything. Nothing at all looks like analysts on the street are, are really taking down earnings yet. And for 2023, which is what I care about, is at 251, which is still sitting at the high. I think that can come down by at least 10%. And if that, and this is important, if that never comes down by, if that never comes down, and certainly if it comes down by 10% or more, so now cut it to 225, there's no way multiples are going up if that number is going lower. So where, where's the multiple now? 17, 17 and a half. I would chop at least another two PE points off there. 225 times 15. That, that, that gives and you the 30. If, and that's if nothing yeah, that, breaks. Yeah, that gives you that gives you 3475 without anything breaking. And what I love about that, Michael, is again, you're such a friend, good friend of this room, and you and you so genuinely want to help people. But but we have a lot of other smart cookies in here. What I really like is we, we, we triage, you know, your stuff with Michael Belkin, with John Roke, with you know, Tom Thornton. We all kind of come up with the same sort of zip code. So, I don't know. J- John Carl, you want to say anything about that? I, uh, I can imagine a 225 number. I guess what, what I'm, I'm – you know this better than I do, but it seems like earnings estimates haven't rolled over yet. I mean – Exactly. And that's the, this is a problem. Everyone's calling a bottom. And I, I said this to you last night, George, and I looked again. I can't think of a market bottom that's ever happened, you know, in a slowdown. We're not in a bull market. So a 5% correction, you know, can end for whatever reason. Yeah, but we're in a global slowdown now. We got more tightening than we've seen in 40 years across the board. And there's never been a bottom that I can think of in the market, you know, the bottom bottom, where it hasn't either been the bottom of, an I, of the ISM, so the economy, or a huge shift in policy. And if you're in a recession, it's always the economy that bottoms to put the market at a bottom. So, thanks for that. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome, Mike. Mike, just stay there for one second. So, John, my problem is, I mean, I, I totally get when you say. No, I, I've got to give. I got to give that a lot of thought because if you're if if the so we've had this massive decline. And so I guess the question is, is I, I mean, as I'm, I'm processing that, I'm not sure, I, I don't know, is it possible that we don't get that 10% correction in your mind in terms of earnings? That, that, that in fact, consensus is sort of right? No way. Zero odds consensus is right. Every, this is the again. This is the most. If you look at anything that can forecast the uh, the economy and earnings, going back a hundred years, so things that are consistent across time, mm-hmm. they're, they're all the each each one of them is is probably the worst in terms of you know rates of tightening the impulse. Right. Everyone looks at how much the the ten year yield has gone up in such a quick amount of time. Mortgage rates. We've seen the same thing in oil. We've seen thing, the same thing in global short rates. So you know the Fed's raising rates now, but. Let's not forget the rest of the world was raising rates all throughout last year. Um, gasoline's at an all-time high. Inflation's through the roof. So all of these things lead earnings by 12 to 18 months. So the stock market is down. It really has nothing to do with earnings or the economy. It's all about inflation 
tightening of financial conditions. And that's why credit spreads, you look at BAA spreads, they barely moved. They're sitting at two, 210 today. That's like, that's where they were in 20, like, like two years ago when, again, you didn't see any kind of massive volatility. Things were getting better. So we look at credit spreads, look at why stocks are down. It's all multiples, none of its earnings. Agreed. And like what people don't get is they see the market down and say, well, we must be pricing a recession. No. All we're pricing in is a reflection of rates, which is why growth stocks have gotten murdered. In a in an earnings downturn, cyclical stocks get murdered, which you're starting to see. Financials are obviously doing terrible. So this is all ahead of us, and I have very little doubt in my mind that we're not he heading into a real ugly global slowdown. And I think we're in the second inning of it. I don't think analysts are going to wake up until they hear from their companies uh, on the earnings calls. Yeah, Michael, the last point you made is, is so true. I mean, it's always, oh, I talked to the company, I talked to the company, and it's like, it's so freaking backward looking. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think earnings are about to go off a cliff. And, and, and Michael, you know, okay, because I'm known as being a sicko. I know you know that, and that's why you love me and John loves me. But, and I don't mean this in the sense of the market going down 80%, but what I mean is in the sense of, you know, valuations expand and contract with perceived growth rates. What's the chance that the market basically gets Netflixed? It, yeah, something's got to break, right? And it could be the economy breaks because if the economy breaks, that that ten percent haircut I said is is probably going to be thirty percent. Right. So if the economy breaks, or, yeah. if, or if something blows up, you know, as growth slows more and more, we are more likely to see something break. Now we talked about you know currency pegs that you know it's probably not going to be a sovereign blow up because there's not so many currency pegs with the dollar anymore it's just going to be a classic growth blow up and the question is who's leveraged not going to have any more earnings but michael let me and ask all you these this growth what? stocks or value stocks that don't make money or toast yeah so michael michael so i always like to be a sicko it's sort of like again we're sitting around imagine i, I love sports you love sports john carlo sports so imagine we call timeout and you know I'm sitting there. I'm the coach. I pull up the stool. I got the clipboard, and everyone's everyone's you know crowding around. I'm going to draw a play. Like like, how are we going to kill the other team? So here's my sicko scenario for you. We get this big slowdown. Initially, at least, the, there's no problem on bank balance sheets. Financial system's kind of okay. Eventually, it'll go there as well. But in the early stages, you know, if all that happens is Arc goes down 80%. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Go, goes down 80%. It's already gone down 70% or whatever. No, but seriously, you just have these bullshit unicorn stocks blowing up. The Kathy Wood stocks blowing up, right? And then we get private equity blowing up, okay? Like, okay, so let's see. The risk-free rate's going up, and you got credit spreads blowing out. And, gee, a lot of these companies, especially the ones that are consumer-facing, they can't they, they got margin squeezes. So let's say credit equity starts blowing up. So the risk is really not on the bank balance sheets. Oh, and crypto, of course, blows up, okay? So you got crypto blowing up. We got the unicorns blowing up. Those are all complete bullshit Ponzi things to begin with. And then private equity. And, okay, Jerome Powell has his roots in private equity. I get it. But actually, promoting, trying to continue further conditions that, 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 that enable private equity to be great. No, no, that's actually making the problem worse. 
because of the hyper-financialization and putting more debt in the balance sheet. So let's just say we got unicorns blowing up, crypto blowing up, private equity blowing up. Yeah, eventually, of course, the bank balance sheets are going to get impaired. But it goes to sequencing. Um, if it, you know, we also real estate that's going to that's blowing up, but that'll blow up as well. But if the banks the banks are relatively in better shape because the capital ratios are much higher. So the smoke to, to, to invoke my inner Bob Justice, the smoke alarms go off later rather than sooner, meaning meaning that the need for the Fed to come to the rescue because some banks are, you know, on death row. That comes later not rather than sooner. And that gives you just a whole huge wipeout in risk assets, you know, and, and what we've seen so far is just a prelude. Any thoughts to that, Michael? You know, all all's possible. Um, we certainly have the preconditions for, uh, again, this is, this is worse than heading into 08, you know, the, uh, cyclically speaking, right? You know, from, from the broader sense of things, obviously, there's, we were leveraged up like crazy. Banks were terribly capitalized and their assets all blew up. But so it's, you know, it's hard to agree with all that. We, and, and all the things that were floated because of easy money and a strong economy, the, when the, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats and the falling tide as it goes out it you know those boats all sink and that's what we're seeing now um how how much is it going to flow through to you know i agree with you you know a downturn is always always a transition a bottom recovery tends to be an event and so the question is you know we what's going to blow up you know i don't know but i i I think it's more important to kind of have this strong conviction that something could probably go wrong rather than figuring exactly out what, what will right. go wrong. And Michael, let me ask you this. Let me ask you yeah. this. Forget about what causes the blowout. But if we say, okay, it'll be something. You say, okay, I'm specifying to you, earning, we're going we're gonna to have a blowup, okay? Yeah. And earnings, earnings are going to go to 200. I'm just making up a number. So 23 earnings are 200, not 250. All things being equal, but they never are. What could you imagine the multiple of the market going to if S&P earnings are 200, not 250? Well, you're saying in hindsight, they end up actually being 200 or the expectations fall to 200? Uh, no, all right. Expectations fall to 200. For next year or for this year? <laughs> Sorry. For, for, for 23, 23. So a, was that 20% drop? Yep. Well, so here, so, so put, put aside the multiple for a second. So if, if estimates fall 20%, the market's down 20%, right? That's just right. math. Right. So right there, you're getting 20%. And then... Every multiple, as the the lower the multiple level is, the more of a percentage haircut it is to the stock market. Hundred percent. And so, how low can it go? Could it go to eleven? Absolutely. Could it go to eight if, the, if we have another global financial crisis? Of course. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows because you can't model that out. Right. I know. But Michael, when you talk about how credit spreads being the driver of one of the key drivers of the multiple. And the band just showed up. The party hasn't even gotten started in the credit cycle yet. And I work at a credit shop. And I say, okay, let's just start layering on, you know, where could spread. So let's do it another way, okay? Let's, wherever credit spreads are now, 325 or whatever they are, okay? And with that going totally crazy, like a normal credit cycle, and then you can go to the crazy credit cycle, where could you see credit spreads going to? And what would be the implications for the market multiple? Well, there's a fairly linear correlation between credit spreads and the multiple, which is going back to my comment. You know, when when risks rise, multiples go down. 
sometimes they rise because rates go up, which has been the story, most, most of the story year to date, and, you know, rates are inflation. It's going to increasingly be the story about multiples. Uh, I'm sorry, about credit spread. So today the BAA spread is at 212. Uh, at the right before Powell pivoted, they got up to 250. So Powell certainly saves a, uh, a much worse market in, in 2019 because earnings continue to weaken. Um, and so that was the end of that. But we had a lot. We've got a lot more tightening today compared to 2019. How high can those spreads go? Uh, 350, 400. You know, at COVID, we hit 440. Let me see. Let me go back a little further. I think we hit about. I mean, again, it, you know, we're getting into silly land where it's just like it's going to be. You know, it's it. What's <laughs> yeah, but my, my, to... my, Michael, 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 John Carl's texting me furiously. Uh, like, as a general rule, he does not like to do equity risk premiums and drive at the same time. So be careful, please. Yeah. Um, so no, but seriously, if but, you take if you take your 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 the thing the thingy from two twelve to three fifty just for round numbers, what's that mean for the market multiple? Uh, absolutely lower, and it's going to be worse for cyclicals, low quality names and leverage. It's not going to blow up. It's not going to be as bad for growth names. It's going to lead to probably a lot of relative PE expansion for consumer staples. So and that's that's the other thing people are saying. Oh, staples are so expensive now. They're they're not expensive now, and they're going to get more expensive on a relative basis as risks in the world increase. Um, and so, again, you know, if we're at seventeen now, we can go down three points in a heartbeat. Okay, can so, I have, so stay with it. Fourteen, but you can't, but you can't hope, model the low though. I don't you know. The, again, no, I get, it, I get it. I get it. I get it. I want KFAB to chime in in one second. Um, so. Well, George, yeah, let me but, say one thing. So the only thing that would prevent, the only thing that would stop the multiple from falling once that starts to play out, going back to what originally said, is a major policy shift. And so that's happened in the past. We've seen that play out. And here's the problem, though. Anytime the Fed has started to cut rates, like look at 2000, um, they start they they basically stopped hiking rates in May of 2000. The market rallied back up to October, back to the highs. And then they started cutting because people thought, OK, they're going to cut. That's great. But then we entered a recession. So the Fed can save the market if we don't go into recession. If we're heading to recession, there's nothing the Fed can do. At least that's what history has shown. And Michael, lastly, and then KFAB and then Gilbert, I want you guys to jump in here. The last thing, Michael, you and I talked about this the other day, you know, where, you know, the counterfactual, where would the market have been without the pandemic? And then going back and looking where it was. In, in in 2019, and it, it, it had gone up a lot because of you know other factors. I mean, amateur chart charting 101. It's easy, easy, easy to put a two handle on the S and P. What would you say to that, Michael? Absolutely. You know, 2019 was all the market went up all because of Powell's pivot. Rates went down. That's what did it. It was all multiples. Earnings kept getting worse and worse in 2019. It was all multiples, and it was all growth stocks. Yeah, that was the beginning of, of the end. Well, not the end, but that was the beginning. And then you get the pandemic, which just ex accelerated what, what had happened in 2019. Um, if we didn't have this inflation problem today, I think the market would be flat. Because multiples wouldn't be down as much as they are. And earnings would be where they are, up 4 or 5%. And if you look at 2011 and 2015, the first six months of those years, overlay that with today. And that's the biggest difference. You know, we were in a slowing economy then. The difference today is that we've got spiking rates, really tight policy, 
which is pulling, you know, which is starting the bear market. And then in 2011 and 2015 and going forward, you then had an earnings bear market, which took the stock market down again. So I, I would rather be short, small, small value, cyclicals, financials, industrials, autos. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, obviously, again, I, I don't want to talk about the next two weeks. Who the hell knows? You know, maybe this is the beginning of a, of a bear market rally of 10%. Great. I hope it gets there because I'm going to short the hell out of it. Michael K., you're on the money as usual. Um, KFAB, did you want to say something, KFAB? Yeah, I just wrote, I have, I have one quick comment and then a question for Michael and then one for you, actually, George. They'll, they'll all be connected. So if you go back to uh, John Hussman's piece uh, that we all talked about back in January, um, you know, basically he decomposed profit mar- non-financial profit margins and how much of the trillions in deficit uh, stimulus from um, the pandemic basically you know, jacked up non-financial corporate profit margins to 15%. That's relative like long-term norms of, you know, let's say 8% if you're going to be generous. Um, so just stimulus running off is is probably a headwind. My, my question for Michael is um, th- those numbers that you're talking about as far as Wall Street consensus, I mean, it's, I, I think it's pretty widely known. This will be my question for George. Earnings quality is back to being an absolute train wreck as if we never went through 2002 or 2008. So everyone's backing out, you know, stock compensation. No one's amortizing uh, goodwill anymore. All these fun things that we've gone over, over it again. So is that like 230 number, the, the non-GAAP, you know, EBITDA engineered financial stuff, or is that like an actual number? It's operating earnings. Um... Yeah, so, that, so that's the issue. So you get yeah. into... Uh, not, but, not only do you have the risk of a recession, you've got phony baloney earnings. A hundred percent. That KFAB, what you're asking. So, Michael, well, KFAB, I want to translate what he said. He wants to know, is, is the market, is it community-adjusted EBITDA all the week works? I mean, you well, know, it's more than that, too, because, you know, uh, accruals tend to be highest at the top of the earnings cycle. And then as earnings slow and we head into a deep slowdown and then the whole earnings, you know, everything gets hit across the board. That's when companies clean up their balance. They clean up their income statements or balance sheets with all those accruals and they dump them. So, yeah. And that's, that's, you know, there's, there's, there's a healthy amount of accruals that um, may or may never, you know, come to fruition. Yeah. So basically what, I'm sorry, George. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. They're going to follow up with something. Well, basically, what I was going to say, I mean, if you go back to the, and I don't think this is a perfect analog. They never are. But if you just look at the 2000 and 2002 downturn, that was not a severe recession, but it was an earnings collapse because, again, a lot of the earnings were baloney. A lot of it was based off of, you know, with the zombie companies, there's a lot of echoing where you have, you know, all the unicorns that were buying all this crap and they're going away. All these companies are going bon voyage. All the cryptos going bon voyage. All this fake demand is gone and are going to be gone, even if the recession's not a deep one. And so you could see that 230 number end up at, you know, pick a number, 100, 150 in a cyclical trough. Yeah, I mean, Michael K., um, it's echoing what KFAB is saying, and you're the guy with the numbers. Have you ever tried to go through the exercise of not just looking at the market on gap earnings? It's even worse. And KFAB, you'll know what I'm talking about. And Michael, you know what I'm talking about. 
all the bullshit shenanigans they pull, a lot of the crap which doesn't ever goes through the income statement. Like they do acquisitions and you, you set up the, you know, the amortization reserves, all these write-offs and you write back the earnings, yada, yada, yada. Have you ever tried to go through the exercise of not looking at gap earnings, but looking at changes in shareholders' equity from year to year, which is not just a reflection of gap earnings one year to the next, but it's all these other, you know, stepped-up basis bullshit for acquisition and so on and so forth. Because those are very real numbers. And is, 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 so I'm really talking about, I mean, look, accounting is a very imprecise science, so maybe it's too hard to do it. But I think it'd be a really interesting question. And then you take it to a, a per-share basis, too. That's a whole other thing. If, 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 if someone went, could do the calculation, I don't know how you would do it, Mike. Maybe you me the data stuff doesn't exist, or maybe, yeah, I know a shortcut how I can do that. But if you just try to capture as best you can changes in um, real book value per share. I, I didn't say, I, I said book value. I know it's a very quaint notion. I didn't say gap earnings. I, did, I said book value, and I want it per share because of the fucking share count creep, all right? I think you need to get Chanos back in here, George. <laughs> get rid of share count. Wait, what? You know, it's very. It's a very little-known fact, but when you when you look at S and P earnings, the numbers yeah. that S and P publishes that we're talking about, they don't account for buybacks. So buybacks does not make the S and P aggregate go up. They use net income, and then they have a divisor. Harold Silverblatt has written papers on this. Uh, Cliff Asnes has written something on the same thing, and we've just echoed what they've shown. There's no buybacks when you the buybacks do not influence S and P earnings calculations because they use net income. It's not per share. So what is that saying then about this? The number when you see earnings per share is that understated, overstated? Um, well, here's the thing: like I, everything I said, you just said, I totally agree with. There, there are so many nuances to earnings these days. And, and that's why if you go to Bloomberg or go to IBIS or go to S&P and say, what are the S&P earnings estimates or what are the S&P earnings last quarter? Yeah, S&P publishes the, well, the, the estimates. Let's focus on that. You'll get three different answers because they calculate it differently. So at the end of the day, you know, what, what I'm focused on is where are consensus estimates earnings going in aggregate? Because you know, whether the quality is, you know, is 10%, if the real number is 10 or 20% less, all of that's going to move in a parallel shift down anyway. So Correct. Yeah. And and companies aren't going to clean up the books and, you know, t- uh, take lo- uh, write-offs and losses, recognize losses until everyone's doing it. And that's not now. That usually happens in a recession or at the, you know, trough of the cycle when every company's got to downgrade their numbers and clean up their balance sheets. So, I hear, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's something to think about. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's yeah, probably Mike, impossible yeah, to have a yeah, yeah, right Michael, answer Mike, though. Yeah, Michael, it's two different things. I mean, I get it. We're not trying to win the IQ contest here. And that wasn't the intent of my question. Right. So I get what you're saying. I think you rightly point out the changes at the margin, which are going to drive price. I get it, but I'm, but you know, it's a topic for another day, but let me go down this rabbit hole. Cause it's a really interesting topic. When you look at one of these bullshit new economy companies, I take out the word bullshit. You look at a new economy company, which, you know, they give you the non-gap earnings. They exclude all the write-offs. They exclude the shareholder, um, uh, the, the sorry, the stock options, which, by the way, is not an academic 
question anymore because now that, for instance, Netflix, just as an example, is as low as it's lower than it was in 2018, you know, people are going to start to say, well, wait a second. Uh, I thought a lot of my pay was going to come from stock options going to be money good. Hmm. If we're not in this role, Goldberg perpetual money machine type of market anymore, maybe I should get paid more. Maybe I'll leave to go to another place. I got paid more cash. So these, these surely, surely these stock options are, um, it's a real expense and the deniers would have you believe otherwise. And so if you start putting those expenses back on the income statement, as you should, it really, you know, does uh, the it does strange things to, to to your bottom line. So, my question is: when you look at a stock like I don't know, take Salesforce as an example, where you know they exclude all the all the stock all the share, all the stock option compensation, and they buy back all the stock at you know they keep buying back the stock to keep the the, the, the float that the, the number of shares that's standing down. So, and then he starts, and then that kills the kills book value. Not like anybody, not anybody cares. But you look at the whole construct from say beginning endpoint to endpoint. You know, year one out to year five or year ten, and you say, okay, what actually is happening to book value per share from point A to point A plus ten? It's a very different picture than if you were to say, okay. Let me add up the non-GAAP earnings year after year after year and look how much money this company made. So if you talk about what's really happening to the economic value of the company, forget about the bogus non-GAAP earnings. To me, it just tells a completely different story. What part of that, Michael, do you have sympathy for or would you comment on? Um, you're, get, you're getting deep into the counting weeds for me. Uh... Okay, well, let, 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 let's break it down. Let's break it down. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that the stock the, the, the stock option expense that's a real that's a real expense that's a real expense absolutely so, for, so i'm sure you get in fights with clients people ask you over the years when someone says to you oh i'm gonna just look at the gap records forget about forget about the recurring non-recurring items leave that out all yeah. the right as the kfab was talking about let's just talk about stock options because that's a big fucking number for a lot of companies all right Especially, like yeah. okay so when people say to you oh you know that's not really an expense you know wh- what do you say to them you know, geez, that hasn't come up in a long time. I can't even remember the last time that came up. Um, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't come up because the market's up and to the right, and yeah. number go up, bro. So nobody cares. You know, you know who that, I would, I would, I would. Uh, you should get on to ask, um, old friend, or we at least we used to be friends. Uh, works with John Roke, uh, Chris Senek, who's the strategist. Of oh yeah, Wolf. I know, I, I know Chris. Is he? Yeah, so he he he'd be the guy to answer that. That you know, that's really what he does. He's 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 an accounting guy, more than a strategist. Um, but that's George, like right in his wheelhouse. George, I can speak to this a little bit. I, again, I'm not a. You go you for probably, it. You probably know about the uh, you know the micro accounting uh, analytically with specific companies better than I do. But from a, a high le- a high level perspective. I mean, we, if you look at the tailwinds that have driven corporate profit margins, again, non-financial, up to that kind of sustainable 10 to 11 percent glo- uh, post-global financial crisis, it's been low interest rates. It's been globalization. It's been corporations leveraging up balance sheets. It's been uh, accounting shenanigans coming back and, and bad quality of earnings. Right. All of those tailwinds that have driven that up to the point where even a Schiller PE looking back 10 years basically imputes a 10 to 11% profit margin. 
So that's why when people say, oh, the market's not as bad as 2000, profit margins in 2000 were around 6%. We're, we're at like, you know, like I said, we're, we hit 15% coming out of the pandemic. So again, if we just went to 6%, assuming no recession, just, you know, unit labor costs revert to the mean and uh, uh, because of reshoring uh, in supply chains that costs go up and, and interest rate expense goes up, like Verizon just talked about. If you just went back to 7 or 8%, you're talking about S&P earnings at, you know, 175 just because of margin compression. That's not even a recession. Just one, yeah. One thing I'd say about that, though, is again, it goes back to composition. You can't, you know, you, you can't take a long-term earning, you know, margin for the uh, for the S and P because part of that is, besides the accounting gimmicks, is is also composition. Right? When you have more cyclicals, you're gonna have lower margins. You're gonna, you know, more uh, growing companies or quality growing companies, you're gonna have higher margins. So that's that's a little 100%. bit. But I totally agree with what you're saying. hundred percent. Obviously KFAB's comments are really excellent point. Yeah, excellent point, Michael. Yeah, but but I'm gonna be switching hey, here. Just, yeah, hold on, Gilbert. I'll just be switching here just to bridge that. You're both right. Just keep in mind, I think the time period KFAB's talking about the prior the last decade, I don't think the index competition has changed enough over the last decade to make a difference. Over 20, 30, 40 years you're entirely you're entirely right, Michael. So it's a question of time frames. Um all right, hey hey Gilbert, what's up, man? Hey, George. Hey, Michael, John, Kfed. Uh, hi, guys. I've been thinking uh, while listening listening to all of you about how passive flows that goes into the S&P uh, every month maybe uh, may be reacting to the, uh, well, at least how the risk, risk parity strategies associated with how those passive flows are kept and how the value at risk of those instruments are affected because of the volatility that we have been experiencing. So the question goes as, as this. We've been trading with a VIX above 25 for quite some weeks now. And the cumulative buying power of those strategies has to have go up because as volatility increases, the size it has to go down to keep uh, a measured uh, position. My question is, how will react those passive uh, strategies to a lower high in the next rate hike? Because no one's talking about what could happen if macroeconomic data suggests. Uh, 0.25 increase instead of a uh, 0.50, and we have to take into account that most central banks around the world have raised their rates faster than the Federal Reserve. So there's a ratio to keep in mind that suggests that even if the Fed keep hiking its rates, the velocity of hiking in other economies may give them more space to, to, to go slower, not to go faster. So I will resume my question in these two ideas. Can we still be trading with a VIX above 25 for a couple more weeks without seeing a decay on volatility and a redeployment of this buying power? And if so, where do you think that buying power is going to go first? 
I know you said bonds first. I agree. Should be deployed first in bonds. But the S&P could be its next target. And if so, I don't know how to imagine an S&P below 380 with uh, with a not declining workforce in the United States. Thank you. All right. So, hey, John Carl, you still there? I'm here, George. Yes, yeah, so John, you don't have, again, I just want to point out, I'm te- this is a joke coming out. I just want to remind everybody, yeah. John was free to go an hour ago. He's chosen to stay here of his own volition because, <laughs> because, because, because he it's is, an interesting conversation. Yeah, no, yeah, no shit. I feel like we, I'm learning. I'm, no, I'm, I'm we learning. Have, we, have, we have the best rooms in Twitter spaces, period, because we get all the smart guys in here, okay? That's why people come here and they stay here. Yous can't leave. This is Hotel California, okay? All right, so. Uh, Michael or KFAB or John Carl, and if none of you guys want to take that one, I'll take that one. Any thoughts? I, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll um, I'll distill it because I actually wrote something about this uh, last week. Um, I you know I think it's widely known, and he gets a lot of uh, justifiable plaudits. Uh, Mike Green having been all over this passive flows issue for you know literally years now. Um, where I've, I've parted ways with him from a, a path and timeline perspective now is I, I, the analogy I use is long-term capital management in the mid-90s where, um, you know, they, they came up with this great ARB strategy uh, and then, you know, people started piggybacking and everyone kind of found the whole street realized what they were doing and their profit margins went down as a, as, as a result. So they started to get mission creep. And so I, I don't think that this and, and, you know, for people that don't know their history, I mean, it turned into a huge crisis and the, the first real big Fed bailout um, in 1998. So um, I, I think that the passive flow story is fully known now. Uh, I think there's been a huge ecosystem, a reflexive ecosystem that's built up. You, you tell Wall Street a huge story of flows coming in. They're going to figure out a way to reverse engineer a way to rip off those flows. Um, through arbitrage and through, you know, as I like to call it, market manipulation, I mean, market making. Um, so I think there's all kinds of ARB strategies, all kinds of embedded leverage in the systems with weekly options expiration, all this funky vol trading that's been going on recently, I think is part of all of this. Um, so I, I worry about that, you know, similar to long-term capital management, um, everyone is assuming that until we get unemployment and that's going to be the thing that kind of, you know, rolls over passive flows. I worry about the ecosystem of, of leverage that's been built up. And it's not just that it's all reflexive with these other strategies that have built up because of like risk parity. Uh, we just have a huge amount of embedded leverage in the system, uh, market leverage, not, not financial leverage relative to corporates or the household balance sheet. Um, so that, that's my concern is that we're going to get some kind of nonlinear, almost like 87, where you get a vol event, um, because of how much people just, it's like God given right that it's a, you know, you have three day a week on to five day a week SPY expiries. And, you know, it's like stealing money from a baby, uh, for these quants with these passive flows for literally years now. And, you know, it's gotten quite competitive. So who knows how much of their leverage they're, they're managing. I would just say that, um, Gilberto, as per your question, I expect economic volatility to pick up. It sounds good. I don't know if it's true, but I, I kind of think that's right. 
economic volley is going to also is going to pick up. Uh, Michael K was talking about spreads moving out. So I totally get, you know, on a very short term basis, these risk parity vol targeting guys, they expand and contract their exposures depending on the latest tick. But that's a very short term flow. And I think in the bigger scheme of things, we're looking at higher levels of economic activity and therefore higher levels of uh, volatility in financial markets. Um, as KFAB was saying, there's a reflexive nature to this whole thing. And I also agree with KFAB. I think there's a reasonable chance, or put it this way, the chance of a nonlinear dislocation is rising. Um, and I liken it to if you're walking across a frozen pond in the middle of January, and it's 10 degrees outside, and the ice is thick, no problem. But if it's mid-May, mid-March, and it's 33 degrees and the sun's beating down the ice, as we get into later March, the ice becomes thinner and the chance of falling through gets greater. And that's kind of, I think, a useful metaphor. At least it's the way I think about markets right now. I hope that helps. Michael, do you want to say anything? Or John, do you want to say anything? No, I'm good. No, I'm okay. Hey, George, I was just going to follow it up real quick because, uh, I mean, if you go back and look at uh, realized vol uh, or even implied vol, the NASDAQ 100 post 2000, it, it's, it's, it was higher than where we've been recently for almost three full years. So you, you, can, you can have higher vol regimes last for literally years if, if, if this vol suppression regime that we've been in um, lifts. So that that speaks to your point, Gilberto, as far as 25 and, it, you know, 25 was like the, the low end of all for a long time, for long stretches uh, historically. Hey, how you doing, uh, George? Uh, thanks. Uh, so, you know, let me say this and then kind of pose a question for anybody who wants to, uh, uh, you know, to respond to it. So, you know, I, I spent 27 years in the financial advisory space, but I was really an investment manager in financial advisor clothing. And now I talk to a lot of the folks in my industry as kind of a strategist. Uh, so I've spent probably hundreds of hours this year trying to educate, motivate, not just financial advisors to retail clients, but the retail investors themselves. You know, the type of folks that maybe a lot of the folks in this room, because they're a little more institutionally focused, maybe don't get to see sort of on the ground. So let me just give you a quick report from there. So I've been trying to, uh, I mean, with my team, I've been trying to distill, I guess, the, the type of perspective that I hear in this space every week, because it's amazing. Uh, and it's a great feeder to somebody who's been charting for 40 years like I have, because I get all the inputs I need to justify what I see in the pictures in the charts. Uh, and it gives me more confidence. So thanks to all of you. So I had my technician overlay. Um, and, and to me, what I'm trying to get across to these folks in the retail advisor space and retail space is a very basic investment rule of mine. Any investment can go up in price at any time. The difference between one investment and another is the risk of major loss you take on. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this room when I say you can get a rally at any time, 5%, 10%, whatever. But the path of least resistance 
probably to the tune of 1,000 to 1,500 S&P points, is down. And so what are 90% of financial advisors, probably 95, but I'll be kind, what are 90% of financial advisors doing with that evidence uh, and the probability of this? Nothing. They're, they're moving as slowly as they always do. They're not evolving their practices to kind of the realities of, of this year. And, you know, they're, it's like, what, you know, they're asking, like, well, how well did your strategy do in 2008? Well, to me, the only track record that's going to matter from here on is what you're doing in 2022, because it's different for all the reasons that you folks are talking about. So uh, I guess what I would love to know from uh, other folks in this room is because I think there's going to be a huge shakeout in the retail financial advisor industry. And I think there's going to be a real comeuppance to the end retail investor. Um, and and the, but the problem is the clients still think that the advisors are geniuses where all they're doing in most cases is they're punting to, you know, block rock allocation strategies. So let me stop there and see if, you know, anybody wants to either engage in this discussion or, uh, or, or, or respond to it. I'm willing to take a shot at it if uh, anybody else wants to go, but I, I have some definite opinions about this. Um, so, Rob, I think 100%, 100%, the 60-40 model is dead along with the 60-40 model. Yep, it's a curse word to me. Yep, and if we're in a world where the truth is more closer to flat as the new up, maybe we go so sideways rapidly for years on end, if not in nominal terms, certainly in real terms. I think, um, you know, this huge, this, this, and, and Michael Green is a friend. So I'm going to say, I want to be very clear what I'm saying about this. Michael Green will never get you out because he's clinging to his passive bid story. Mm. Michael Green has been of zero help this year. He's actually been totally wrong. So that's looking through the rear view mirror. So the question is trying to anticipate when that changes. And to be fair to Michael, in recent weeks, it's been remarkable, and we don't have Shrub in here to help us with this, but we don't need him. I'll pretend to be Shrub. The flows, their flows have been remarkable insofar as the last month. Hey, Rob, can you mute yourself, please, Rob? The, the, flow, the flows have been, the flows have been um, very muted. They've been, I think we had a raffle of 20 billion, 13 billion, like a billion, 4 billion. It's not even 40 billion over the last four or five weeks. And that compares to the trillion plus we saw last. And on top of it, Kathy, has been getting money in. Things you don't see at the bottom. Yeah, I, so, could, I, I couldn't yeah, agree more. Yeah, five hundred million last week. You know, yeah, exactly. That, okay, okay. Yeah. So, 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 hang on. So, hang on. So, I think there's a huge tidal wave coming, and that's why, you know, I've made it public. A lot of people have asked me to get back in the game and run money again. So. We're in the process of filing a uh, prospectus for the SEC to come out with an ETF, which is going to do things a lot differently. It'll be a long, short strategy, more akin to a lot of the themes you're hearing in this room. So I think there's another way. I think you should run money any in any way except what's being currently the way it's being done. The hell with the index. I think it's. I think being an active manager right now, it is so easy to beat the market. It's not even funny. Forget about being short. It is so easy to beat the benchmark. Amen. All right. And this is to me, if you don't get it, because you got participant bias, you've been run over by FANG stocks, just go back. I'll take you back in the Wayback Machine to the 80s. 
when I was writing the National Fund, and we all, you heard about in the history books, you know, Japan, blah, 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 real estate, the Emperor's Palace was worth more than the state of California, the Japanese stock market's on 60 times earnings, yada, 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 yada. Okay, it's one thing to read about it, it's another thing to live through it. And on the way to the peak, any guy with half a brain, John Templeton, God rest his soul, Jeremy Grantham, go down the list. They're railing away about how screwed up the Japanese stock market is. And for those of you that don't know it, the non-U.S. index, the non-U.S. S&P, as it were, is called EFA, Europe, Australia, Far East Index. And the Japanese market went from like 20-some-odd percent of, 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 of that index to 66% at the peak. And 30% of that index was Japanese financials. So in other words, 20% of the entire non-U.S. S&P was Japanese bank stocks, which are selling on you know, six times book and 100 multiples. But as the saying goes, markets can remain irrational for long and you can remain solvent. And we, and we know that in, in, in the aggregate, active managers are, you know, have underperformed the market. It has to be because the sum of all portfolios is equal to the market return less transaction costs. The only question is, in any given year, there are more, even more, you know, sometimes there are even more people underperforming. Sometimes once in a while, the average manager outperforms. But in the aggregate, they underperform. And that's the case for passive because you've got transaction costs and market impact. Okay, fine. Why am I telling you this story? Because on the way to the peak, it was impossible. It was impossible to beat the market because it was 66% Japan. And Nick Bratt, who's still around, he's retired. He was running the Scudder International Fund. He get out and say, oh, you know, we're really bullish on Hong Kong. We're double weight. We're at 2% instead of 1%. Yeah, meanwhile, Japan's 66% of the index. Hello? I mean, that really like arguing today, oh, we're overweight utility stocks. You know, it's, we're at 4 instead of 3 We Meanwhile, you know... Tech is 45, properly accounted for, and whatnot. So the point is, sometimes the market makes you look dumber than you really are. Sometimes it makes you look smarter than you really are. We have just come through a period where, because of the FANG stocks and all the rest, it was very hard to beat the index. And I would humbly suggest to you, or not so humbly suggest to you, we're now in a period where it's really easy to beat the index. Really easy. And so just at a time when everyone's indexing and the hell with active management and so on and so forth, and it's the way it always works. Mr. Market always, you know, his moral obligation is to embarrass as many people as possible. It's just the way it always works. As in, and I'm going to digress for one second. If Michael K is right on interest rates in the economy, it's perfect. Michael K, you didn't even mention this. I don't know if you picked up on this one, but I'll send you the chart. You look at the net short position in euro dollars right now. Every man and their dog is short euro dollars. I mean, I don't expect rates to go down, so I'm arguing against my, my, my book. So coming back to, there was a question, I'll get back to where I started. There's another way forward. The ETF we're bringing out in September is going to be exactly that. It's going to be an absolute return product. Because frankly, you know, everyone is, oh, I don't want to short studs because the market only goes up. Yeah, try that one. Off. How's that working out for you in the last year? So the alpha may be just in being long. I mean, I'll give you one. He's, you know, I don't want to try to embarrass him, but he's the best strategist on the street. The guy to my right, three things over next to Nautilus, Michael K has 110% right. And he's not paying me to show for him. When he says, hey, you know what? Forget about the crazy Kathy Woods crap in one end zone. He really opened my eyes and made me think. So I, I love this room. Stop blowing your nose, Carl. Or mute, mute your mic. Sorry. Um, and, and he says, you know, it's, it's not just the crazy Kathy Woods crap. It's, it's the zombie value leverage garbage, which has only been kept afloat because of the Fed's 
irresponsible monetary policy, the most reckless policy in the history of mankind. And therefore, you don't want to be in either end zone. No American Airlines for you. No Kathy Woods for you. Stay between the 30-yard lines. I think I'm, you know what, if I was good looking as you as Michael and Younger, maybe I can imitate you. And, and find companies with decent balance sheets. It's not a growth value argument. Decent balance sheets and reasonable cash flows. You will outperform. So I think his strategy of just being long between the 30-yard lines, and Michael, I'm going to hand this back to you here. I'm setting you up. Maybe you can flush out a little bit more. Being long the stuff between the 30-yard lines and short the crap on a relative value trade in either end zone, to me, that is like a game delay and basket sway and slam dunk. I mean, I just, I, I'm hard-pressed to see how that trade doesn't work. Michael, I mean, how does the trade not work, Michael? Uh, if the economy doesn't slow, which I don't know how that doesn't happen. So that was a little sneak promo plug for the ETF. And if anyone's interested, really could use your help. We need, we need 25 million, but I got to be careful what I say. The probably SEC is going to come after me. We're not registered yet, so I probably can say it. Um, you know, we're going to start this thing in September. We'll see how it goes. Um, we did a poll a couple few weeks ago, and I know you got to take what people say, cut it in half and cut it in half again. But it was a simple poll, and, you know, people say 85 million. I've got a lot of emails and DMs from people, yada, yada. We need 25 million for thing to be break even. So hopefully some of you guys will come along for the ride. And it's not just, it's not just, um, it's not just, you know, a fund of itself. So you should put all your money into it, but as diversifier for a typical investor, maybe put 5% of your money in there. And it's not just a return you're going to make from, which is uncorrelated to the market, but also part of my whole effort is to try to educate people and, you know, the ETF will be transparent and we're trying to want to try to teach everybody to become a better investor. So, it will help you with the rest of your portfolio because you'll see that we won't own Kathy Woods. We won't own Fang stocks. Uh, you know, have a bunch of shorts in there. Um, you can imagine what the portfolio would look like. So I probably shouldn't say much more than that. Hopefully I won't get in trouble by dinner, what I'm saying, I've already said, but whatever. So no, I totally agree. Going back to the question. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think there's more volatility in, in store. Gilberto. I think it was your question. Yeah. Short run. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And like Michael says, I've said, trying to predict the market day to day week. To, yeah, sure. So you know what'll happen. These knuckleheads will, since they're on a VARA-based budget, they'll come in and buy more and drive it up and drive it up and drive it up. And then some of the retail idiots say, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. And then something will happen. I don't know. Something will happen. We're going to get a recession. Putin sets up a nuclear device in Russia. You know, God knows what happens to the Chinese economy. I don't know. But, you know, seasonally, we're into the worst freaking time of the year right now. So we'll put it this way. Put it this way. Zilgi Bear once said, you know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. I have no idea what the market's going to do. I have my opinion, but everything's about risk reward. And, you know, if we're wrong and we're too negative, like how much is the market going to go up? It's like, like zero upside, basically. And if we're right, we're getting into a bidding war here. Oh, 3,500, right here, 3,200, right here, 2,700 on the S&P. It's like, why would you do that? It's, it's, it's no upside and all downside. So, you know, I'm on a rant here, but there was there was a concept before the rational bubble going back a few years ago. Yeah, everyone knows it's overpriced, but it's going to keep going up because the Fed largesse, yada, yada, yada. I'll get to you one second, Michael. That was the rational bubble. Buy high and sell higher. Trading sardines. Okay, now we got the rational bear market. You look at a slow economy, falling earnings, possible recession, the market which historically is overvalued. The public put a trillion dollars in the market last year, hardly is taking anything out. The, the level of geopolitical risk is, is never been greater. The world order is falling apart. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Michael, do you have a question? Michael K. 
Well, I just wanted to kind of go back to if we talked about you know, a lot about the indices and talked about quality. And I, I posted something a couple of days ago. And, and of course, right away, people beat me up. And, and I was highlighting the difference in quality between S&P indices and Russell indices. So just I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, like you said, you know, half a big part of this room is to educate people. So I think this is a, a worthwhile point. To get into the S&P index, the small cap 600, the big cap 400, the large cap 500, you have to be profitable initially. That's why it took Tesla a while to get in or you know, any of these companies, Facebook, et cetera. You gotta be profitable. In the Russell indices, you just gotta show up. You just gotta IPO. You don't have to be profitable. And so I posted highlighting, I think in the Russell, maybe 2000, 35% of the companies don't earn a profit today. And if you look at the same metric in the small cap 600, it's a fraction of that. And then, you know, it's the same thing in the mid cap index and the large cap index, you know, the Russell 1000 versus the S&P 500. So what I posted was that if you're going to shorten index, and I'm, this is not an invest, investment recommendation, <laughs> there are a lot, low, there are far more lower quality companies in the, in the respective Russell indices, large, mid and small value and growth than there are in the S&P indices. So, you know, we're talking a lot about the S&P going down, which I agree with, but that wouldn't be the index I would short. I'd sooner short the Russell 1000, or even more aggressively, I'd short the Russell 2000 value index where all the zombies live. And so I think it's, it's an important point. You know, you got to understand, like George, you said, what you're owning and what you're shorting. And there's a huge difference between S&P and Russell indices and it's the large difference can be explained by quality and profitability. And one of the worst performing factors out of the 130 factors we look at this year, it's not growth. It's no earnings. Just say no to Kathy. Thank you, Michael. Yep. Hey, Michael, you know what? I'll become, we get this ETF up and running. I'll become a real client. So there you go. Um, I, I, right. I have to, I have to, I have to say, you got to be very careful implementing that strategy right here, right now, based on 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 the analysis that we've done. So just be careful over the short term or the intermediate term. The, I'm, not, I'm not saying go short the, the Russell 2000 small value now. Okay. By any means, I think if I had to put a dollar away for a year, absolutely, I'm saying that today. From my perspective, you should be playing when you feel like you have an advantage. If you don't feel like you have an advantage. Then you can. Then you should be on the sidelines doing something, doing something else. That that's all. And I say sidelines. And when I sit there and I say, oh, I can clip coupons and make, you know, four and a half, you know, six percent in terms of stuff without taking on a huge amount of risk. I think that's a reasonable thing to be doing in this environment. No argument with that. But was not clear at. Okay. Are, are you? So you? So you? You are? You were saying you are saying you have no opinion about the bigger picture. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying I'm open-minded. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I look, I'm, I'm not, I, I think, you know, like I, I know it's, it's, you know, maybe I'm the, I'm the, I'm totally the minority in terms of this, this crowd, but like, there's a lot of people that are super bearish in this mix. And I'm going to, and I'm just going to point out that stocks are down a bunch already. That's all. And, and, and I'll, and I'll leave it at that. And I would say to you, this room is highly unrepresentative of what's going on elsewhere. And this room is highly unrepresentative because some of the smartest people in the community that I know are in this room. You know, you know, you know, if retail hasn't sold the goddamn thing, 
and they're still piling into Kathy Woods and hedge funds are still 45% net long. That doesn't strike me as bearish. I, I, I hear you. I, I guess the, what I would say back to you, George, and I don't have the data on this is, is, you know, you prove it. Like, show me the data. Go back and tell me where these things are, where these things tend to bottom. You know, are they associated with bottoms? Are they not? Like, that, that's all I'm saying. Like, just, to be, just to be transparent. Hey, can I jump in for a second? Go for yeah. it. I'm going to repeat myself. I think I said, that, I think I said this earlier. And I, was, I was talking to Mike Guyad earlier. Every major market bottom is it an is that an economic bottom or a policy bottom, policy shift bottom? Every market bottom. Does it does anyone? And so I think you know you guys are talking about two different time horizons, and I think you guys are kind of saying the same things. You know, we all George acknowledged. You know, we're going to see bear market rallies, but just if you're going to jump in that, you got to know you got to have an equal rule when to get the hell out of that. And most you know retail investors aren't going to have that discipline. Can I put a uh, circle around this, perhaps? Uh, so I think there's a difference between, and this goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, uh, different time frames, but not even so much different time frames, because we all know the market moves you know, three, four times faster than it normally does. doesn't matter whether you're a trader or investor. There comes a point where you say, all right, for the next 10% move, I don't know where the next 10% move is, and I stare at the charts all day. Uh, but the next 30% move, uh, right now, odds favor down, not up. And even if you're wrong, wouldn't you at least want to be prepared for it? And so I guess what I'm kind of saying is you're both right, you know, not to weasel out of it, but um, you know, it's different time frames. And uh, and, and, you know, to me, I mean, the market, it just, the market is just a constant story and we just have to listen to what it's saying, but it does go to time frame. If you're willing to look at, you know, where w your results on a monthly or quarterly basis, great. If you look at them on a weekly basis and you prefer not to trade, except when you really, really have to, this is also an environment where, <laughs> You know, I mean, personally speaking, I've had more model changes in my uh, uh, strategy than uh, I can ever remember having in probably a nine month period. But that's because it's, you know, it's signal driven, but it's also experience driven. And I guess what I'm saying is, you know, let's not confuse what's going to happen the next 10 percent up or down with the next 25 or 30 percent up or down. That's the big risk that's on the table. When will it be off the table? We'll all know from our different perspectives, fundamental, quantitative, or my technical. I think that's very well said, Rob. Thank you. Tom Thornton, you uh, have an opinion about things. What are you seeing, Tommy? Hey, George. I just uh, jumped in a few minutes ago. I'm um, in Dallas. I, my daughter just graduated from college, and I'm just thrilled about that. And yeah, the market, uh, quite the move, um, last, the last week, um, you know, it's not, it's not a perfect, easy market. And I mean, I know, okay, everybody said, well, when is it ever, but it, it can be at times where it's just too easy to make money on the long side. Like we saw, you know, last year in 2020, after the, the lows, it was pretty easy. You could just you know, get your Scrabble chips and go for it. But now it's not easy with the short side. And I, 
I will tell people I'm, I'm in the John Roke um, camp in the sense that I expect, you know, lower lows, lower highs or actually lower highs, lower lows to continue. And it will take longer. And last week when we were on George, I said, I haven't seen a capitulation yet and that's important. And everybody's been waiting for some sort of capitulation. And the other day was pretty ugly, not Thursday, not Thursday, but on Wednesday, it was pretty ugly, right? I'm just trying to go back. I've been traveling, but Thursday, the breath in the market wasn't so bad and new, um, I think we talked about new highs and, and, and lows, new lows weren't that as bad as the previous week, surprisingly, and just looking for some sort of divergence of things coming out. And I had started to cover, uh, my shorts all week. And I, I, I had a lot of people give me a hard time about it. And they say, you're just, you're covering too early and you're, you're starting to buy too early. And I thought to myself, well, then I'm guilty of that. Uh, I don't mind scaling in and out of positions early. That's just what I did when I worked at a $5 billion hedge fund. You can't just flip on a dime and go, you know, well, we're short and now we're long. That's, that's for Twitter. But I started scaling out and I'm okay being wrong, taking profits or even being wrong, starting to add longs uh, into a downdraft because I add small. I have a max position size 5%. I started adding a bunch of longs Wednesday, Thursday, and I added more on Friday, 2%. I added to some of the 2%. And and this is the type of market that there's no capitulation. You still, you, George, you're absolutely right. Kathy Wood is still getting inflows. I mean, people just want to incinerate cash, but that's their problem. We haven't seen the end of the road yet. And again, I didn't see a capitulation. I saw the potential for a bottom market sentiment on the S&P and the NASDAQ hit 9% for two days in a row on the daily sentiment index. That was enough for me combined with which sentiment has been weak basically all year. And that's a condition and it can, can stay weak and just as it was, it stayed bullish all last year. But I got the, I got a lot of DeMarc buy signals and I, I just followed that and said, okay, I'm going to buy the muscle memory stocks of what people would buy because they just, they're familiar. So I bought stupid things like Amazon. I bought Shopify and it's up 20%. I mean, whatever. I was short at the very top too. I covered it early, but whatever. The, the point is, uh, it's a tactical market. You can say, I think the next 30% is down, but you're going to have a lot of chop and a lot of difficult decisions thinking you're wrong along the way. So I, it's just, it's a tactical market can afford to be wrong don't be too wrong and just you know try and, and not get shot but tommy when do you close those trades those longs what do you look for uh you know uh ultimately i'd love to see like demark set up not sell set up nines and that's what we got at the last the previous pop and that could maybe be a week or two. And 
you know, this is not a, you know, I, I, I actually, I'm truth be told, I'm friends with Dan Ives from Wedbush and we both have opposing views on Tesla and tech stocks and everything. And he asked me to look at his generational buy tech stocks call the other day. And I said, look, Dan, I, I think you're totally off on this because earnings are going to continue to weaken, especially in the mega, mega cap tech names. And it's just going to be a chop. It's going to be a chop. So I just, I don't see the, the I, I look, if I can get 10%, a 10% bounce. Yeah. I'm, I'd probably be start to scale. I might start scaling out next week on some things. Um, if I'm wrong and things start to fall apart again. Yeah. I'll cut them immediately. But I was pretty lucky catching catching these at a good time, and Friday was a great day, and I'm all just again I'm I'm trading out of a foxhole. Uh, big decisions uh, really are not or big longer term decisions are impossible right now, and that's okay. Um, and I, I'm that's that's basically my my strategy all year, and that's what I've every time I'm on spaces I say the same thing. Tommy, I, I totally agree with you in terms of that. I think the the big longer term stuff is really is is really hard to make uh, for for what it's worth. I totally agree. If you manage money professionally, it, it, it's it's really really hard because yeah. you're it, you could be working for a fund or prop shop or even a mutual fund, and you can blow up your your month or your quarter pretty quickly and it's hard for a lot of these firms to pivot and that's a really really important fact if you're a speedboat like me you can get around things uh the bigger picture yeah i think yeah we're definitely going to go lower it's too early in the year to say we're, we're going to bottom here i think there's a, another quarter in june or july that's going to show some difficult earnings picture and you have the Fed, I mean, then throw on the Fed and what they're doing and quantitative tightening hasn't even started yet. And they're going to keep raising rates. They Look, they said 50 basis points for the next two meetings. That's going to get priced in, I think. Maybe, maybe it already is a little. Maybe sentiment is priced in for that. I don't think prices are on the overall markets. And I think people sort of said, okay, fine. If that's what it is, it's quantifiable and... We'll buy some stuff. We'll buy what's working. And this is a market in the last two years of people that chase. If it's green, oh, it must be a buy. And that's what people are doing. And not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just it, it's what's worked. Yeah, I think what's important that, uh, George, you, I think you were kind of alluding to this. What, what we just have to be careful of is, you know, in, in a bear market, bear market rallies, are basically entire the market's basically totally binary like what worked the last three days or two days when the market re rallied was the stuff that's gotten beaten down the most and as soon as that's over that'll go back to being beaten down the most right that, that's how these things tend to trade so uh, i think it's a it's a worthwhile point too so people you know if you're buying you know, right arc was was up 24 percent from 36 bucks or something great and when we when the next downturn comes, it'll be the worst performer again, it, and it may go up another ten percent, twenty percent. Absolutely. If we get if the market if the S and P is up ten percent, Arc's probably up another ten percent. You're right, and you know one thing also. Well, but I would. How, how many people have asked you when to buy Arc? I've had a lot of people ask me, and I say, you want to buy crap? 
that's losing money and people are there's overhead resistance of people that bought in last week you know all-star charts is down 30 percent probably from where he told everybody we're stupid you know because we don't know valuation or liquidity or innovation but those people want to get out so there's a lot of i mean i can i can buy amazon and sleep at night down at these levels i can buy a couple others out there that are marking market leaders i don't need to buy teledoc or have any part of that agree agree so this is another risk to the overhead uh pressure on the market if if we have a short-term rally here because because the economy right now you take a snapshot of the global economy things are fine you look at all the economic data the earnings data things are fine they're getting slower they're going to get real ugly if you take a snapshot in a year i think it's going to be real ugly if you take a snapshot now things are fine powell's saying nothing about the downside risks to growth i'll make it more specific the labor market is extremely strong in the us so the risk here or something i think people have to look out for that along is if the market goes up that's only going to make powell more emboldened just like if we continue to get strong employment data which i think we will because it's a lagging economic indicator it's going to make powell more emboldened so that that's a risk because right stocks up is financial conditions easing that's not what the fed wants so i'm not saying that's you know the stocks are only going to go down but to me that could be a catalyst that ends it and that's just something i think you got you got to look out for yeah, that's a great point. Hey, listen, gang, I've got to go. Um, it's uh, graduation day. I'm uh, taking everybody out to lunch here and I'm going to pop some champagne and enjoy the day. I just absolutely want to say thank you, George and everyone. And I just I will say I'm a huge fan of Nautilus Research. I think you guys do amazing work. And I'm just, um, you know, I just think that it's great to have so many cool people in here all the time. And and uh and definitely, uh, please donate. George has done a great job, over 200000 I've donated, and I'm really um, very happy about that, helping good people. So anyway, I'm out of here. My wife's going to yell at me. Talk to you. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. All right. Let's just rip through a few more questions, and then we're going to shut the room down, because this has been going on for almost on four hours now. This is what happens. Jeffrey, uh, it is now your turn to speak. Sorry, an hour later, but uh, maybe this is your first time in the room. You, I think you can appreciate uh I've got my own uh, uh, dictatorial style of moderate. So, Jeffrey, the floor is yours. What's up? No, I was just going to say I really appreciate the room. I've listened a lot. Terrific people, much smarter than me. Somebody asked a question earlier about the retail investor or what advisors were doing, and I'm an R. I run an RIA, um, and I will tell you that the money we run, we've done well in this kind of market. It's more our kind of market, but um, I have several clients who have money other places and they have accounts that are still 30 40 percent one or two of the big tech names they haven't sold the share uh one guy has several million dollars that is uh run by his mom who has told me over the years has consistently beat our returns and the account's 50 percent in apple and that that is that is a true story and i think there's a ton of uh that's still out there. You don't understand if you don't talk to people on a daily basis, how much of that is still out there. Apple hasn't been sold yet in these accounts. And 
you know, I, I, I sent, uh, I posted a few charts. I'm not a big poster on Twitter, but I posted a few charts of, I just noticed that Facebook and Netflix, when they first crashed, both went to their January 18 highs. Um, and, you know, if you look at some of these other stocks and they go there, there's just a long way down. And, and the retail investor hasn't sold yet. And, and they will at some point. I don't know when. 100%. And I actually think Apple's a great short right now. That's another story. Michael, the other yeah. thing to look at, I think, is that yeah. just, just one more thing. Um, I think a good indicator will be when the assets of ticker GK go, you know, below a million bucks or something. That's a ETF by another RIA, which is just loaded with all of the stuff we're talking about. Hundred percent. I think watching some of those will be good indicators. Hundred percent. The, the, the Gerber Kawasaki, awesome. Michael, you want to say something in response to that? Uh, yeah, just real quick. I just think, just to uh, repeat myself from earlier, I just think we got to be careful. You know, again, everyone we all want to beat up large cap tech stocks because you know those have been the poster childs of, of this, these rallies the last couple of years. And so, and, and, and for sure, any company like an Amazon that pulled forward tons of demand. Uh, is is still in trouble here, and any company that doesn't make any money, which you know what we're talking about here, is also in trouble here. But back in you know, back in two thousand, none of those companies made money, and that's why tech underperformed until the market ultimately bottomed. Just just remember, the last five months we've seen a, a massive spike in the, in, the, in in interest rates, a massive spike in inflation. I don't think we're going to see anywhere near the equivalent over the next three five months. And so leadership, I think the worst performance in large cap tech as a group is behind us. I would be looking into other cyclical areas or just focusing on companies that really don't make money or have real bad fundamentals. I hear you, George, and Apple. But to me, if, if we're going down another 30%, I'd rather be shorting small caps than Apple. Mike, Mike, Michael, it's a race to the bottom. I'm not going to argue with that on that. I mean, I, I, it's 100%. Look, I, we're, we're, we're sort of, let's not, I, I, my comments in Apple are stock-specific observations. So. Yeah, I just used you because you, you just, I, yeah, I'm just, no, I'm just I'm, trying I'm, to separate. You know, and I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. All right, so four hours and 20 minutes. It's supposed to be a two-hour room. Um, appreciate uh, uh, all your uh, contribution has been a great room. John George, Carl thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the invite, and uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot today. Well, I'm glad you came, and I would like you to come back again. Not as a speaker, you should just come and hang out, and, you know, as you saw, like, you know, people, I mean, Michael Kay, he didn't know he thought he was a speaker, but he's, he's always the smartest guy in the room, and he really is helping hundreds and thousands of people with his insights and contributions you heard Tom Thorne. You heard Jeff Garbaz. I mean, I'd like you, like to consider you a friend of the room. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, totally. And, 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 and this is where the smart guys hang out. All right, and hey, and hey, we got we got to have beers. I mean, it's a long time. You're only 45 minutes away from me, so let's get together. Yeah, I no, look forward to that. All right, hey, listen, everyone, this has been awesome. I mean, just what a privilege. John Carl Donalus, Michael K, Tom Thornton, Jeff Garbaz. I mean, K Fab. I mean, Rob. You guys are the best. This room is the best. And, you know, we're all doing this. We're all learning together. We're raising money for charity. I mean, seriously, we've got community. We've got Carol. I mean, uh, I just, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about the journey and learning. And 
This is fantastic. I learned from all of you. Carol's going to close the room. All right. I'm going to close the room with one very brief thought, which is every time I come into one of George's rooms, I say to myself, buckle up, buttercup, because there are so many smart room minds in this room. And it's an opportunity to see how the sausage is made and the thought process that goes in to taking a position on the direction of markets. So what we're trying to do in this room is high impact thinking, high impact learning, and hopefully some high impact crowdsourced philanthropy. So for those of you who are inspired by what the conversations that are taking place to pay it forward and give back, please, please consider clicking on that link to World Central Kitchen and helping us make a difference beyond these rooms.